Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Yes, good morrow indeed, and uh, we are very, very happy to welcome back Matt Blaze. I will begin by uh, asking Matt Blaze a question, and uh, this, is, this is kind of a dress rehearsal for the the $1,000 Minute. This is not a question for today, but it could be for tomorrow or any future show. Uh, Matt Blaze, what is the most populous country in the world, the country with the most people? China. Uh, Kenneth, if you were to guess what the most populous country in the world was, you think he's right or do you think he's wrong? Repeat that again, Frank. I'm well, sorry. Do you think he's right or wrong about uh, the country that has the most people? Uh, I'd say he's right. He's right. Okay, yes. You are both correct that China does have the most, the largest population in the world. However, however, if we did this show in the future and we did this show a year from now, these guys would both be wrong. Because, well, I mean, you know, they're still right and their reputation remains intact. But by this time next year, India is expected to surpass China as the world's most populous country. Now, this is this is according to a new report from the United Nations looking at population trends. Now, India's got some problems. uh, Let's be honest. They got problems with a lot of different areas. It's it's, you know, the. Problems with human rights and other things. But compared to China, India is a textbook Jeffersonian democracy. India, despite of the fact that they've had some setbacks recently, is the world's largest democracy. And I think this is a great thing for America and the West in general. India is largely viewed by the West as a key counterweight to China's influence in the region. The world's population is going to reach 8 billion by November 5th by November uh of uh by November 15th and 9.7 billion by in 2050 but the global population is growing at its slowest pace since 1950 due to decreasing fertility rates in many countries isn't that interesting and the covid pandemic also had an impact on overall population growth bringing down life expectancy a bit. But as things go now, India is going to be the largest country in the world come this time next year. So it just so happens I got an email yesterday, and we're going to go through all your emails later. And if you want to email me and have your email read on the show, you can do so, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Here's the deal. So... I got. I have a lot of Indian friends, both people that are of Indian descent and people that have emigrated here 
from India. And uh, I have had very good experiences uh, with with Indian folks. And I had a, a, a girlfriend briefly. She was American, but she lived in India for a time. She moved out there for work and some other things. And she I learned a lot about Indian culture from from her. I got an email from a gentleman named Jay yesterday who calls himself. He writes to me regularly. He calls himself my number one Indian fan. He said, I'll boil down to only the substantive part of the email. He said, I'm Hindu, meaning he's Hindu, Jay is Hindu. I'm Hindu, married 30 plus years. Here's an interesting slash surprising fact, and mostly true. I don't know a single divorced couple where they were married in India and then came to the United States. Arranged marriage, but happy. Both my kids graduated from Harvard, empty nest. So it got me thinking, huh, I wonder if that's true. I wonder if divorce rates are lower among Indian couples or among Hindu couples. Sure enough, the answer to both questions is yes. As far as divorce rate by major religion, 34 it's 34% Protestant, 31% Muslim, 30% Jewish, 21% Catholic, 10% Buddhist. Only 1% of Hindus are getting divorced. So I said, okay, that's interesting. Let me look at what's going on in the country of India itself. Let me see if the country of India has a similarly low divorce rate? Answer, they do. Now, a recent study shows that India has the lowest rate of divorce in the world. Only 13 out of 1,000 marriages in India, that's a mere 1%, end in divorce. So uh, there's more to these numbers, but it got me thinking about the subject of arranged marriages And I know there was a time in human evolution where this used to be commonplace, and it no longer is, at least not in most of the world. But is this something that can work? Clearly, it works for Jay and his wife. Do you know anybody that's been in an arranged marriage? How does it work out? How has it worked out for them? And what do you make of these low divorce rates among Hindus and Indians? I did a little research, and it's not necessarily as good news as you expect. But I'd be curious if you know of anyone that's had experience with these arranged marriages. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Now, I I went straight to the source. I read uh, a bunch of Indian research from the country of India Uh, translated into English about why India has such a low divorce rate. Because is there something that we in America can be learning from the Indians? And sure enough, I think the answer is probably no. According to this one bit of uh, research here, this is from an Indian Indian publication, women have very little voice. According to a study within India, divorce rates are the lowest in certain uh, provinces where patriarchy still has a stranglehold on society. So while divorces are higher in the more liberal northeastern states, this shows that the, the divorce rates might be low even today 
because too many women are not in a position to speak up against their families or support themselves financially and emotionally if they choose to walk out of oppressive marriages. Then another thing they say is contributing to the low divorce rate in India is sanskar over happiness. Of course, it's not just women who suffer bad marriages. Indians are just never taught to prioritize individual happiness. The family's reputation, the feelings of the entire ecosystem around us, meaning the Indians, are supposed to be more important than following our heart. Thus, divorce comes with the tremendous stigma of selfishly abandoning your familial duties and damaging your family name in the process. Now, I don't think that's a good thing. I think individual happiness and the pursuit of individual happiness is a good thing. But is there anybody there that thinks that maybe that's a good philosophy? Are there any folks out there that think that way of looking at life the um, rather than putting your individual needs, your individual desires, your individual happiness, your individual personal ambitions first, you instead put the good of your community and your family first. I feel like there was a time not long ago in America where that happened. So um, apparently it's also a very long legal process. So there are some practical difficulties as to why so few people get divorced in uh, in India. India is among the most progressive modern democracies as far as the law on divorce is concerned. The Hindu code, uh, the Hindu code bill passed in parliament in the very first decade after Indian independence. It granted divorce and remarriage rights to men and women equally. But great in, uh, intentions are ruined, according to this one article, by bureaucratic inefficiencies. The legal system in India is so slow and long drawn that simply initiating the process of divorce is intimidating. So people don't want to go through it. Four is morality over legality. Even if you do cha- choose to take the legal punch, divorces in India are not easy to come by. Judges, after all, are products of our society, and their focus is on reconciliation rather than separation. So countless women have tales to narrate of judges asking them to think of their family and kids despite presenting evidence of cruelty and abuse. And then last, but uh, perhaps most important, is uh, religion. And this is where Hindu comes in. Hinduism is the dominant religion in India where marriage is a sacred bond that is supposed to outlive rebirth. So the dissolution of marriage, like a civil contract, is a distinctly modern concept for a lot of Indians and is gaining acceptance very slowly. But I'd be curious um, what your reaction to this email that I got from Jay is about arranged marriages. Do you know folks that have been in these arranged marriages and that have, um, you know, had whatever their experience has been? Have they been happy? Have they been sad? Have their marriages lasted? 800-848-9222. And is there anything that you think America can learn from India, at least when it comes to the divorce rate, because at the rate we're going, pretty soon India will be the number in the very near future, within a year, India will be the biggest population in the world. So I'd like to try and get as many Indian listeners on board as we can. There's going to be so many of them. It'll be great to get uh, get um, Indian listeners patronizing our advertisers and so forth, right? Calling in from time to time. But whatever the case may be, uh, I'd be curious about your take on whether an arranged marriage can work 
And if you know folks that have experienced this, or maybe you yourself have been in an arranged marriage, because it sounds like it works out very well for Jay. Married 30-plus years, they seem happy. Both kids off to Harvard. What say you? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Len in Manhattan. Hello, Len. Hi, Frank. How are you tonight? Great. Thank you, Len. I'm calling because uh, I know of a gentleman who uh, presently lives in America, and uh, he came from India through Trinidad to the United States. And uh, he's been in an arranged marriage for more than 40 years. And um, I think he told me he met his wife like a week before they got married or maybe in less time than that. And uh, right now all the kids are doing well. Uh, He's financially stable. His kids are financially stable. And uh, he's a success story here in America. So it sounds like based on the anecdotal evidence that you've experienced with this this fella that, you know, an arranged marriage can work really well. That's correct. That's correct. And, you know, what you said about uh, uh, um, uh, what's going on here in America, you know, I was talking to your screener when you began listing some uh, factors that might influence or impede or uh, affect somebody's ability to get divorced in India. Um, you, you know, it seems to me, I don't know if there's a financial component to this, but it seems to me that. Up until the 1960s in America, divorce wasn't really uh, that common. Now that women have independence, mm. now, that, now that the Equal Rights Amendment has been passed, now that the women's liberation movement has gone on, uh, I, I discovered recently uh, that as recently as 1974, women couldn't get a credit card without in this country, the United States, without the written permission of either their husband or their father. I was stunned when I found that out. So I think that women in America can, be, uh, can live without a man. I don't know if women in India still need a man to have a, a comfortable life or not, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if a financial component played a role in the decision to stay with the men that they're staying with well, in India. Very interesting, uh, Len. Good points all. Uh, by the way, the Equal Rights Amendment never never passed, But by okay, the way. But, but everything else you said in the early exactly. 70s, right? Sorry? It was introduced in the early 70s, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 mid to late, mid to late 70s. But yeah, absolutely. Uh, Len, 800-848-9222. Jacob is in Orange County. Hello, Jacob. Hi, how are you, Frank? I'm well, um, thanks. I'm a Hasidic Orthodox Jew. Well, great. By us, it's a very normal, this is the way we go. You, well, um, uh, meaning you know, in the Hasidic community, arranged marriages are common? Absolutely. Okay. It's not and, just common. This is, this is what we do. We have basically a matchmaker in the community, and she's basically looking. She has a list of boys and girls, and she's basically she calls up your mother saying, I was thinking about this idea. I think it can work. You just go out maybe for a few days. The dating process is also not that long. And once there's commitment, you know, you just jump into it. And uh, I think in my community, I have approximately 6,000 to 7,000 families. I think we only have like maybe five to six uh, uh, divorced couples. Now, obviously, so are, are you, if I can ask, are you in an arranged marriage? Yes. So absolutely. and and it worked and you've been happy with it. It's worked out well for you and your family. Beautiful. Okay. Really well, that's great. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. The people um, who might not be from that culture and that tradition, the I, I guess the the first thing that might occur to folks is, well, how do you how do you commit to spending your life with someone and sharing your life with them and raising kids and having them as a partner in life? If you have never even met them prior to making that commitment, so basically we do we meet. I mean, for for a few days, you know, you look at the basics. She's healthy, mentally stable. 
Um, she has a job. The family is okay, you know. And then you just you just have to commit yourself, you know, to the end goal, which is you know, build a family, have kids. Look, when you ask a sixty-year-old, "Are you ready to get married?" Nobody's ready, <laughs> right? You you just have to jump in and do what you know, do the right thing, and just with a little prayer, and you'll be fine. Do you think society would be better off on the whole if more cultures, more religions, more traditions embraced this concept, which the Hasidic community has embraced and the Indian community has of arranged marriages? Absolutely. I'll tell you why. I used to work in a place, you know, with people from outside my community, just regular people. And I always, like, in conversations, most of them, like, I heard my ex girlfriend my ex-boyfriend that plenty of plenty of ex-girlfriends and boyfriends and it, it's happening because when you're not in a there's no real commitment you know you're not married right you you basically you're dating for a long time and there's a lot of challenges on the way you know it's 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 a little bit uh dangerous to be in such a long dating process well but it, so i mean i guess the, is, the, uh, the the theory though jacob is you you find out during that dating process what some of the things about a potential partner might drive you crazy so that you don't commit to spending a lifetime with them. I mean, I guess that's the theory. Right. It depends because there's basically, this, as I said before, the same few things you want to look at. Is the, is the, is the, is the person healthy, mentally stable, physical, physically stable? You know, you just look at the same, the first few things and, and the most important things, and then you just hmm. jump in. Maybe it's not made for everybody, but we grew up like that, and we saw an example, you know, from our parents that it, it works beautifully, so we're not afraid to do the same. Well, and the Hasidic population, not only in this country, but in uh, other parts of the world as well, is growing pretty exponentially. So with the Hasidic population yeah. growing and the Indian population growing, it looks like uh, the world may see more arranged marriages in the future rather than fewer. Exactly. J- totally Jacob, agree. thanks for the insight, and appreciate you calling, sure. appreciate you listening. Anytime. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That was really interesting. I'm curious what your experience has been if you're in an arranged marriage or if you'd want to be in an arranged marriage. I, I could not uh, do it. I couldn't make the commitment to marrying someone that um, that I'd never met. I, and I know, isn't that the premise of a whole bunch of these re- reality shows now, like The Bachelor and everything? I remember when they did that show, Who Wants to Marry a Millionaire? You had uh, this was very revolutionary. Now it would not even be in the top 20 most shocking shows on television. But back then it was big. I mean, they had this woman, Darva Conger. I can't believe I still remember her name. Darva Conger, who married this guy, Rick Solomon, who was a millionaire. I I married him on TV. And then they got divorced in like a week or two, which surprised no one. But if they had entered that relationship with the same level of commitment, that uh, sounds like Jacob has, and my number one Indian fan, Jay, I wonder if things would be different. My friend Jason is now engaged to uh, an Indian woman. Not an arranged marriage, but they, they've moved very quickly. They've moved very quickly. They, they're getting engaged. They're getting married. They're getting, uh, they got a puppy together all within a year. So I wonder if maybe there's something to be said for that. You know who I texted 
Some of you may remember Babita Haryani. Curtis used to call her the Hindu princess, and she is a Hindu. She's not married to an Indian man, but she's from India originally. So I texted her uh, to see if she wanted to share any anecdotes from from her family, but uh, I didn't hear back. So we'll see. 800-848-9222. We're going to continue with your calls in a second. Those of you that are on hold, we'll get to you in mere moments. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Mr. Doublelina, Mr. Bob Doublelina. Mr. Doublelina, Mr. Bob Doublelina. Mr. Doublelina, Mr. Bob Doublelina. Mr. Mr. Doublelina, Mr. Bob Doublelina. 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 This is probably the greatest song of all time. Certainly one of the catchiest songs of all time. Uh, although we haven't been playing the monkeys version of this uh, of this song, Matt yeah, Lewis. I gotta get that. Yeah. I gotta tell you, the monkeys version is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. It is weird. It I, is weird. I wouldn't even think it was the monkeys. Yeah, it sounds like some avant garde sixties group. Is, it is very. It's peculiar. crazy. It's true. But anyway, um, so I was gonna save this email for the um, the thousand the. Uh, the mail cars portion of the show where I read your mail. And if you want to, uh, if you want to get your mail sent it read, just uh, go ahead and send me an email. Frank dot Morano at wabcradio.com. But there's this fella that listens to our show and he does a, he does a radio show somewhere else or something. I don't know if it's just on, on the internet or whatever. And so now he has been uh, playing this song since hearing it on our show on something called Jemp Radio. He's been playing it, this guy Andy, on Jemp Radio, which I think is just an online platform, all the time. This is this, I think it's a fish-themed radio station. I, I know nothing about it. I never heard of it. I know nothing about it. So the, this guy got an email, and he forwarded it to me. Hey, Andy, I'm digging your show. I'm a recent fish fan, going back only to 2021 at the Gorge. My wife and I are both 57 and we are all in. Saw them in Santa Barbara and we are traveling to Jones Beach. So excited. Also, love this song you're playing now, Mr. Dabalina. Big fan of old school hip hop from the early 90s. So Matt Blaze's decision to play Mr. Dabalina has had this whole ripple effect or a domino effect or a rippling domino effect where the whole world is now... Sing, singing and playing Mr. Dombolina. The whole world is. It's like that Seinfeld where they're eating cookies and uh, candy bars with a fork and knife. That's where we are. I wish we could get the same trend going for some of the new words that I've created or, um, you know, or, or tedient, for instance. That was a word I thought was going to catch on based on the show. It didn't happen. Or just bringing back tab, for instance. You know. All right. 800-848-9222. Hindus and Indians have a lower rate of divorce than anybody else. One of my fans says it's because of arranged marriages. He says he doesn't know a single couple that got married in India and came to the United States that's divorced. Not one. And he knows a lot of people. Because when you're Indian, there are a lot of people to know. About a billion. So... I'm just curious what your take is on this. Um, as we heard from Jacob, the Orthodox Jewish community, 
they've embraced the idea of arranged marriages. Is it something that I couldn't do it? But I'm wondering if maybe there's some merit to this. 800-848-9222. What do you think? Let me say hello to Devin in Yonkers. Hello, Devin. Hey, um, especially the arranged marriage thing. To me, I'm sorry um, if I sound like a judgmental, you know, B, but guilty as charged. It's just crazy to me. Absolutely nuts. I really feel like you have to be very insecure or naive or religiously brainwashed to do something like that. Um, and I think that the, the reason that the uh, track record is so good in some of these places, uh, you know, like India or Jacob and his Orthodox community is because the women are afraid. They're going to be outcast. They're going to be broke. They're going to be shamed. God is going to get them. I mean, come on. It's ridiculous. So we're not signing you up for an arranged marriage anytime soon. I would be single for the rest of my life, gladly, before I would. I'm sorry. I, I really consider that a form of prostitution. I'm sorry. Like, I would never want to spend my life with someone unless I truly loved them, respected them, and looked up to them. You know, and I felt a chemistry and a connection with them. Well, I, mean, I would be Devin, single and a homeless before I would do that. I, I think that's the way a lot of people feel. I would Let me be clear. I would not choose homeless before arranged marriage. If the choice is... You get to you get to be married and live in a nice home and have an arranged marriage or be single, although there's a lot to be said for being single at times, let's face it, but um, or be single and be homeless. I would not choose being single and homeless. I would choose the arranged marriage in a nice home. Rebecca in Haverstraw. Hello. Hi. Let me explain something. I'm an Orthodox Jewish woman. Um, now, I'm not I'm not Hasidic. That doesn't mean that Jacob is more religious than me, or I am no, more no, religious. No, no, of course not. We're both we're both religious. It's just we have two ways of living. Sure. They, they the Hasidim do it more like they did it in Europe. Okay. Now he, he wasn't clear. It's not an arranged marriage by the, the Hasidim. Um, they they it, arranged marriage in India. Like I don't think the girl or boy get to see each other. It's just made up, and they have to get married. Um, by by the Hasidim, what they do is they do a lot of investigation, same by, you know, in my circles, in the Orthodox community, a lot of investigation. They do meet each other once or twice. You know, they sit by themselves in a, in a room and talk. And basically a lot of research was done. Now, I, I, I don't come from that, okay? My kids and myself... I my I, I I also did a lot of research for my sons. I did, I did a lot of research for my daughter. In other words, and then you know if the family you know you do, do a lot of digging into the family, you find out a lot about the the, the girls. You go you speak to teachers, you speak to friends, you do a lot of investigation. Okay, and then if if both sides you know it sounds good on both sides, you you do go out. We we date. We do date, but we date so you know for the purpose of marriage. Right, I understand. My my, my sister in law is an Orthodox Jew, so I am very familiar with with her relationship uh, wise. But what you're saying, I think, in a nutshell, Rebecca, is what Jacob is portraying the Hasidic situation as if it's identical to the Indian slash Hindu no, situation, not. and it's, it's not. not. That's what you're saying. Absolutely not. Okay, well, no, and, I, I appreciate then, you clarifying that. And then. I but Jacob the way Jake, the way the Hasidim do it I I could never fathom that. Gotcha. But, okay. So even one minute, one minute, one minute. But 
I had five. I live in a house where I have a tenant. Okay, I had five tenants who did, who were sitting, and I'm not. And I, I couldn't imagine how it works. But I have to tell you, I saw. I've seen over the years five beautiful marriages. Wow! All right. Well, that's uh, that's. You know what it is? The, the old expression: different folks for different folks. Different strokes for different folks. I couldn't do it. I'm telling you that that would be very very difficult. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. It was difficult enough to me for me to get, make the decision to get married in a non-arranged <laughs> manner. But uh, Jimmy is in New City. Hello, Jimmy. Oh, talk about that. I waited till 35. I think it was beneficial. You know, you mature. You can afford the I, family. I, you know, I agree with you, Jimmy. I completely agree with you. You know, well, we're responsible. A lot of people, like you say, they just, you know, who cares and let's just, you know. I mean, a lot of things happen. I come from my wife. Uh, her parents were 18. They got married just as a piece. Dad went to the Bell Telephone to go to work that day, and that was it. But they had a very tough, you know, life. And all my parents were very conservative. They came from, even though my wife, my mom was uh, married at 18. My dad was 26, but he had a successful job. He came from the Navy. Then he got into a great trade. And that's a different kind of young marriage, and that's the way it was. She was a baby of uh, seven from the Bronx, and it worked out well. Um, I'm crazy. Uh, my wife's like, how are you the sane one out of them all when she meets the gang? But it's funny. You should see that they're, they're, they're totally different both sides. But unfortunately, um, the marriage, that set-up marriage thing, in my belief, it's like this. It's not recognized by the state. I, I live in New City, which is a slang term for it, which I will not use. Um, they get married. It's not known by or recognized by the state and then the the woman gets the benefits for the kids and the man no no I, yeah i i, I understand that it's the same that just goes on i don't like that yeah no no, no neither do i just, neither do i i've done whole shows about that i've been called anti-semitic you know, sorry okay. because no, uh, I mean, I, I'm not all my best friends growing up with jewish it doesn't matter yeah, no, 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 no. Uh, jimmy i agree uh, jimmy i'm just gonna your your phone's a little you know blue um weird there but um i i'm just you know I think the question of arranged marriages is an interesting one, and it seems to work. You even heard Rebecca say it works for her tenants. You heard Jacob say it works for him. You hear Jay, my self-proclaimed number one Indian fan, it works for him. So, uh, look, you can't knock what's working for some people. Let me say hello to Mark in Ocean County. Hello, Mark. Hello, Frank. How are you? I'm well. So as an Orthodox Jew living in Ocean County, um, two points I'd like to make. Um, First of all, the reason why this could work and it does work so successfully, and successfully not only means that the the divorce rate in the Orthodox community is low, it means you walk into the houses and they're genuinely happy. Right. The marriages are genuinely um, great marriages, great, great marriages. The reason why it could work is because the Orthodox community, the families that are marrying each other are so similar to start off with. Their goals are so similar. Their ideals, their culture is so similar. Um, before the two families, um, you know, join in marriage. It's not like you take – if you take the average American, one in Colorado and one in New York, they're vastly from different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Their cultures, everything is so different. There's no way you can figure out, okay, yeah, it looks good, healthy, stable, let's put them together and make it work. But in the Orthodox community, we're all in the same schools, we're all in the same ideals, going in the same direction. That's one point. Um, second point, the whole idea of what marriage is and what it's for 
and its purpose um, is fundamentally different to the average Orthodox Jew than it is to the average American. Um, the average Orthodox Jew looks at life as I'm here to give, I'm here to, what can I do for somebody else? How can I make myself a greater person? How can I work myself out to be a better person? And marriage is the ultimate um, gym to make ourselves a better person, the ultimate um, treadmill to work ourselves out and become better people. Um, so we really look at a marriage as, what can I do for this person? What can I give to the person? And if the person has something that bothers me, that means I have a greater opportunity to make myself a better person and to work myself out over it and to love them, even though it's not so perfect. Interesting. Even though that's uh, Mark, bothering me, still I'm going to give. I, I love that. I love that philosophy. It's a great way uh, to look at things. I think that's great. And I think your attitude that you just reflected Putting aside the religious aspect, but just to take it from, to a secular place, that sense of shared sacrifice is absolutely missing in the country today. You know, that inaugural address that President Kennedy gave where he asked, uh, he said, ask not what uh, your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Can you imagine any politician, Republican or Democrat, saying that today? Um, de- every Democratic politician runs on a platform of giving money away in the form of uh, social services or checks. Every Republican politician runs on a platform of giving money away in the terms of tax, in terms of tax cuts. So I, I think that idea that we're in this together and the, we being a marriage, a family, a city, a state, a community, a country, I think that's lacking. And, you know, caller called yesterday and I agreed with that person that said we could use mandatory national service in this country to you know real make people realize that there's something beyond their own self-interest and uh, i think that is very much at play when it comes to the family life i, I like that again uh, putting aside the religious aspect of it i like that attitude that um it's not just about you there's more of us here I don't know when that started. I feel like that was kind of a baby boomer thing, that when the baby boomers came of age, it became all about pursuing what they wanted to do no matter what. Uh, damn the consequences, full speed ahead. 800-848-9222. I know I'm a little off the beaten path there, but not not much. I thought that was an interesting point. Dave in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hello. Hey, Frank. How you doing? Thanks great, for taking great, my call great. up. Sure. Yeah, you know, my I, I, no, I'm not involved in an arranged marriage, but my boss kind of opened my mind to what it was, and it's more like arranged dating, where the in 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 his Indian culture, you know, where he's from, they it's not this fundamentalist thing where you you meet somebody and you know that the young girl didn't have to be married, you know, it's it's more arranged dating. They see and and they but basically what the family does is arrange people that they think is the same share the same values and cultural background. So it, it seems and like, and he's just happily married. I could see some wisdom behind it. So I think there's something to it that, you know, when it's in that context, not versus being forced and arranged that, hey, you're going to marry this person, but more or less, here's somebody we think you might be compatible with based on their background, their family, cultural the similarities that you have. Um, there may be some, I think that goes a long way to keep these marriages uh, sustained and last longing. Well, I think that's a, an interesting thing, Dave. So, seeing your boss's experience, would you ever consider an arranged marriage? 
you know, if, if it was said like, uh, you know, if, if my family was bringing some people to date and see if I was interested, I don't think I have a problem. As long as I felt it was my choice, it still is their choice. You know, it's not like some type of, it's not something that they're forced to do. And when he met his wife, he, he was, he knew right away he wanted to marry her. There was, and, and believe me, his wife is a very strong, independent woman. Even though she's, you know, Indian descent, I mean, she's very American. Um, and um, you know, it was a, 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 I guess a, a decision. It was a, uh, you know, something that, you know, was something not voluntary, or hmm. it was they, they were able to make that decision for themselves. Thank you, Dave. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Isaac is on Staten Island. Hello, Isaac. Hey, thanks for taking the call. Um, so I agree with what the other caller said. Also, I think that because the American culture is going downstream and, you know, ultra-Orthodox Jews are pretty much part of that culture, in the past 15 years we've seen an extreme increase in divorces in the ultra-Orthodox communities, as, um, and <clears throat> it's, it's now not normal for someone to divorce, but it's more normal than it was. But I think that the difference also between Orthodox Jewish marriage and a secular person marrying is that we don't look at it as marrying marrying a friend. You don't. It's, it's not about beauty. It's not about marrying a friend. You, you don't even know two days before you're getting engaged who that person is or what type of person that is. And it, it's it's not about marrying a friend. It's not even about liking that person very much. It's it's about being fine with that person. And you're marrying that person to build trust because you're both going to be there for one another. But you're not there for anything other than marriage, which, which having kids and being with another person mm. and sharing with another person, but it's not, it's not about having a, having a friend. And then when, you know, you don't feel comfortable with that friend or that friend doesn't look like you want that friend to look, you, you break off because well, that's not what it's based on. Uh, Isaac, uh, great call. I appreciate the perspective very much. So I guess, you know, the takeaway here, my takeaway anyway, is that, um, arranged marriages can work. And they really only work because of the strength of the commitment that people are willing to dive in. And if people who got to choose their own spouses use that same level of commitment, maybe that's a lesson that could be learned there, right? Um, yeah, it's certainly given me uh, some some pause in thinking about relationships and marriage. Absolutely. All right. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, the images that we are seeing from the James Webb Space Telescope in just a moment. You want to comment on uh, anything that we're talking about from space to the, you know, to the institution of marriage. Now's the time. 800-848-9222. Very excited. We are going to continue our conversation at two o'clock with Logan East regarding Theodore Roosevelt and the Supreme Court. Would we be better off now if we'd listened to Theodore Roosevelt 110 years ago? We'll explore it with Logan East straight straight ahead. The other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Say I'm the sheik. Of Napoli, your love belongs to me. At night, at night when you're asleep, into your tent I'll creep. 
The stars that shine above will light our way to love. You'll rule this land with me. Say I'm the sheik of Napoli. The great Lou Monty, one of a kind. Uh, the Sheik of Napoli, a brilliant, brilliant performer, if ever there was one. Hey, I, I have not been to a Met game this year, and I don't remember. I'm sure I was at least uh, a couple of games last year. I don't remember if they still do the Lumonte hit uh, Lazy Mary at the Met games, or was that just a Shea Stadium thing? Anybody been to a Met game lately? Can anyone answer that question? See, uh, Nobody knows. All right. Well, I uh, I do wonder about that, because that was always a big part of the New York Mets tradition is playing the uh, the Lou Monty, uh, the Lou Monty hit Lazy Mary. Hey, um, the first full color picture from the new James Webb Space Telescope has been released, and it does not disappoint. Now, the image is said to be the deepest, most detailed infrared view of the universe to date containing the light from galaxies that has taken many billions of years to reach us. How cool is that? So if you look at this image, I'm going to link to it on my uh, Facebook page if you want to see it. It's uh, facebook.com slash MoranoFan, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. You see this color image of all these different galaxies. Think of all the planets that are in each of these galaxies. So um, the it, this is really neat. So President Biden was shown the image during a White House briefing, and further debut pictures from uh, James from the James Webb Telescope are due to be released in a global presentation today. Here was uh, President Biden along with the administrator of NASA, Bill Nelson, talking about these photos and kind of saying what we're going to see from this James Webb telescope prospectively. America is defined by one single word, possibilities, possibilities. I want to thank the team at NASA for once again showing that that's who we are. That's who we are as a nation, a nation of possibilities. And now let's take a look at the very first image from this miraculous telescope. NASA Administrator Nelson, I'm going to turn this over to you. So will you please tell us about what we're seeing? Mr. President, if you held a grain of sand on the tip of your finger at arm's length, that is the part of the universe that you're seeing, just one little speck of the universe. And what you're seeing there are galaxies, uh, you're seeing galaxies that are shining around other galaxies whose light has been bent. And you're seeing just a small little portion of the universe. You know, 100 years ago, Mr. President, Madam Vice President, 100 years ago, we thought there was only one galaxy. Now, the number is unlimited. And in our galaxy, we have billions of stars or suns. 
and there are billions of galaxies with billions of stars and suns, and we're getting our first glimpse. As you said, Mr. President, we're looking back more than 13 billion years. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second, and that light that you are seeing on one of those little specks has been traveling for over 13 billion years. And by the way, we're going back further because this is just the first image. They're going back about 13 and a half billion years. And since we know the universe is 13.8 billion years old, we're going back almost to the beginning. How cool is that? I think it's I'm excited to see whatever images come next, because if that's what we're in store for, uh, that's pretty exciting. I do wonder, you know, we've spent a lot of time in my conversations with Dr. Sky and with others talking about how after the 70s, people seem to have no more interest in going to the moon and very little interest in the space program. And our space program was sort of gutted and not really much of a, a priority until private spe- sector space pioneers like Richard Branson and like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos started to push private sector space exploration and development. I wonder if these images will inspire a whole new generation of people to pursue space exploration and to push for their governments to do a better job uh, or I mean this is pretty impressive but to do more in terms of investing in space what do you think were you as wowed as I was what do you think 800-848-9222 that's 1-800-848-9222 let me say hello to Anthony in Boston hello Anthony hey Frank listen I I, I was assuming you have Dr. Sky on I remember him talking about it. you had him on he's talking about things that were going on in space but you know some Here's the beauty of our country. I know you love America. So the guy who turned it around was an African-American guy. And like you said, there are Americans here, right? They grew up. They become engineers. And uh, this man, right, his name was Greg Robinson. And I was an article in the Wall Street Journal. And they said how it was they were going to cancel the program. And they said, take it over, take it over. He turned down the job multiple times. And they said, but you're smart. You could do all these things. And he turned the, the, the web program around, which is what we're looking at right now. I just thought it's nice. Here we are, we talk about things. A man, he really put it together, and they had the other guy at the White House. This guy's an African-American man. He was an engineer. He was educated. He turned the space program around for that telescope. Yeah, you yeah. you're, you're, make a difference. You're, you're exactly right, Anthony, and I'm so glad you mentioned yeah. that. Thank you. Um, the guy that fixed this giant space telescope did it kind of reluctantly, Gregory Robinson. He was enjoying another job when NASA persuaded him to take an enormous astronomy project that was billions of dollars over budget and years behind schedule, and he righted the ship. I completely agree with uh, everything that uh, that Anthony said there, and so uh, that was pretty. That was it's, it is an interesting story if you read. Uh, I saw the Times did a profile on uh, Mr. Robinson, and uh, it was certainly very interesting. All right, back to more earthly pursuits. If you want to comment on space, you can eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 Saturday. My wife and I are hosting a barbecue. Now, we've been trying to be somewhat judicious in the guest list, okay? So I came up with a 
Now, I, again, I came up with a broad guest list, and I know she would strike a bunch of people. So my guest list, her ideal number of people at a barbecue is 20 to 30. And I think that's reasonable because it is, it's more than that. It's tough to talk to everybody. So I came up with a first draft of 100 people to invite, which is what we had last year. We had 100 people over the course of several hours, though, so it doesn't feel like 100. It was still a lot of work. And then she ultimately, I think, drafted – we got it down to about 65 invites and another 20 backup invites. But here's the problem we're experiencing. People are not RSVPing. So now uh, she's dialing down on me to try to figure out how much food we need for people. So she's trying to get me to explore, well, is this person coming? Is that person coming? Sure enough, the first thing I did when I saw Dominic Carter on air is I said, look, you're number one on the list. He was the first person we listed, and he has not yet RSVP'd. Another guy, for instance, that has not RSVP'd, Matt Blaze. Now, everybody, Matt Blaze's kind of reputation is that he doesn't come to anything. So I, I don't think anyone's going to be too surprised if he just doesn't come. But what's with the lack of an RSVP, Matt? Why not state unequivocally from the beginning that you're not coming? Oh, Frank. This invitation that you sent to me. And everybody else. Well, everybody else. I mean, there were some radio terms in there that I would thought that other people besides anyone who worked here didn't get. It's possible. I had to read it at least 10 times. 10 times? Not because I didn't understand it. Because it's just so unbelievable (laughs) that you sent me this invitation. That I think I want to read it. And let everybody listen to. It. Well, I mean, let everybody hear it. You're welcome to do that. I well, think I did that. read it. You're welcome to read it. But um, w- what about the lack of an RSVP on this one, Matt? Well, I'm still thinking about. Oh, this. you're still thinking about. It. Yeah, because there's a lot of questions that I have about this invitation. <laughs> okay. To this barbecue, so that's what I want to talk about. I want to read it on the air, and I want people to hear it, so I understand where this is all coming from. All right. And the backup list. When. When you're ready, when you're ready, you let me know when what questions I can offer you okay. to get you there. Now, meantime, um, wh- where were you last week? You, uh, you were on vacation. You were on a vacation. Vacation. Staycation. You didn't go anywhere. I did not go anywhere. I, I was. I saw, and there was a, a buzz in the Facebook group about where I was yesterday. Apparently, for some reason, everybody thought I was coming back yesterday. And there was, I mean, Ellen Metzger was ready to send out a search party. <laughs> but, I, I, but that's not exactly a buzz. Two people well, wondering where you well, are. Well, there was a whole bunch of comments I about where so. I was, I what so. I was doing. Now, Do I have the right to privacy? I mean, it was crazy. <laughs> I said, I took, a, I took a week off and I came back the next day. I mean, well, I don't understand what, the, what, the, what all the, the, the buzz was, but there was, apparently. So, no, I just had a little staycation and relaxed. Now, um, I heard your girlfriend's family was in town. Is that true? That is correct. That, now, that was your first time spending time with them? Yes. Now, did they get a totally different Matt Blaze than the rest of us get? Like, were you all friendly and, and, no. and charming and everything and wearing a suit and dressed to the nines with them? Absolutely not. I hid in my studio as much as possible. Oh, you did? Okay. Absolutely. All right, because I would have been disappointed if you put, like, put on this front for your girlfriend's family and then we get the, the gruff, misanthropic Matt Blaze oh, when, no, when no, we see you. Not at all. I was trying to stay away as much as possible. I did the thing. <laughs> <laughs> that we had to do. They wanted to go to the Statue of Liberty. I did that. They wanted to go on Broadway. Saw Aladdin. I did that. Other than those things, I was out of the picture as much as I possibly could be. How did you like Aladdin? 
It was pretty cool. Yeah, and I've seen that it. show. It is good. And they did yeah. away with the face mask requirement, right? Yes, no face mask. They say optional. So I, well, that's good. There's still like one person wearing the mask. That's good. All right. Um, coming up next, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court. We're going to continue our conversation on the Supreme Court and Theodore Roosevelt with independent historian Logan East. We will take your phone calls on it if you have questions about it. 800-848-9222. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am Frank Moreno. I've talked before about how I really enjoy the TV show Sliders. I love the concept of it more than the implementation, especially the later few years of this show. And basically what Sliders was, was a show that explored parallel worlds. What would the world have been like if the United States lost the, um, you know, uh, lost the Revolutionary War? What would the what would America be like if um, uh, Texas remained an independent country and uh, and things stayed that way? You know, it was all these interesting concepts. And there's this whole genre of fiction that explores something uh, stuff like that. I think it's called allo history, I think, where it explores what things would be like if this happened or that happened. And. Over the course of the last decade, but especially over the course of the last year, I have spent a lot of time wondering what would this country be like if we had listened to Theodore Roosevelt in the year 1912. I am not leading this fight as a matter of aesthetic pleasure. I am leading because somebody must lead or else the fight would not be made at all. I prefer to work with moderate, with rational conservatives, provided only that they do in good faith strive forward towards the light. But when they halt and turn their backs to the light, sit with the scorners on the seats of reaction, then I must part company with them. We, the people, cannot turn back. Our aim must be steady, wise bonds. It would be well if our people would study the history of a sister republic. All the woes of France for a century and a quarter have been due to the folly of her people in splitting into the two camps of unreasonable conservatism and unreasonable radicalism. Had pre-revolutionary France listened to men like Turgot and 
stacked them up, all would have gone well. But the beneficiaries of privilege, the Bourbon reactionaries, the short-sighted ultra-conservatives turned down Togo and then found that instead of him they had obtained Robespierre. I look at what Theodore Roosevelt uh, campaigning in 1912 uh, when he was seeking to return to the presidency after having left the presidency four years earlier. I look at what we as a country have allowed the Supreme Court to do over the course of the last 120 years, and it makes me want to pull my hair out. Now, um, I am strongly of the belief that most of the fundamental decisions about policy in America should be made by the voters. And it's like Theodore Roosevelt said when he kicked off his campaign. The fundamental question we've got to face is, are the American people fit to govern themselves? Well, the consensus among conservative legal scholars, uh, liberal legal scholars, conservative politicians, liberal politicians, appears to be, no, we're not fit to govern ourselves. Woodrow Wilson and William Howard Taft, who were running against Theodore Roosevelt in that campaign, one conservative, one, you know, kind of liberal, they they basically had the same approach when it came to the court system, which we're going to find out in a minute. But the thing that I don't understand is why the voters tolerate this, why legislators tolerate this. Why have we allowed nine unelected judges to be a veto council over the will of the American people and our democratically elected representatives on both the federal and the state level and the municipal level. It makes no sense. And I'm of the opinion that uh, we'd be better off today had we listened to the warnings of Theodore Roosevelt in 1912. Someone who has done an incredible job in terms of his scholarship on this era in American history, and this question specifically, is Logan Stagg East. He's an independent historian in Louisiana, and uh, his work has dealt extensively with the nature of constitutional politics during the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era. And he said in an article, which I shared on my Facebook page uh, at facebook.com slash moranofan, 9,000 times more articulately and far better research than I could ever hope to be. Pretty much what I wished I was smart enough to say. I had him on last week, and the response to this discussion was phenomenal. A lot of people writing in disagreeing with my approach and with Theodore Roosevelt's approach, and a lot of people saying, you know, I'm interested. I want to learn more. I want to learn more. So we've invited him back. For a full hour, and we'll do our best to answer your questions as well at 800-848-9222. Logan Stagg East, thanks so much for joining me on the radio again. Hi, Frank. Thanks for having me back. All right. So um, I guess the the uh, one of the fundamental things that we hear about the Supreme Court, and I'm curious about your your view on this question is that they are a co-equal branch of government. And the fact that the legislature can uh, make laws and the uh, executive can enforce laws and the courts can interpret the laws, that creates a nice equilibrium that keeps ever, any branch from getting too powerful. It's a separation of powers. But there really isn't anything in the Constitution that I see 
that says they are a co-equal branch of government. What is your take on the concept of the court being a co-equal branch of government and the idea of separation of powers in general? That's a great question. And uh, as far as how the founders viewed it whenever they wrote the document, I would argue that a lot of them really thought that the primary branch of government was the legislature. Uh, whenever we look at it today, of course, you know, I think most people probably look at the executive branch, the presidency as the leading role, and that's not really what was intended at the time. But that's at the court, I think, does serve a very important role, and it, it is a necessary role. Uh, whether it's equal or not is, is hard to say. I, w- I would say, no, it's not quite equal, but its role as interpreter is is important. Um, the question really is, okay, what are the limits of that interpretive power? Uh, what is its just application? Well, let's talk about the limits of that interpretive power. There have been so many cases over the years that liberals and conservatives have been upset with. Conservatives were not at all happy with Roe versus Wade. Uh, liberals were not at all happy with the Citizens United decision. Conservatives were not at all happy with the decision on uh, gay marriage. Uh, liberals were not at all happy with the with the gun case, the Heller case. Uh, it seems like both sides, conservatives and liberals, were very upset over the eminent domain case in the Keogh decision. Why don't more modern politician, uh, pol- political figures, think tanks, uh, members of Congress, seek to bring out more Theodore Roosevelt-style solutions and push for a popular constitution rather than just continue to accept this rule by judicial fiat? That's a great question. And part of the problem is that whenever you make an attack against the Supreme Court, and I want to be careful with, you know, we don't want to slip into demagoguery. We don't want to, because the judges do serve a necessary role of some kind. We want to get into that throughout this hour. Um, But there is a perception that when you attack the court, you're attacking our entire constitutional order, because most Americans believe that there should be some limits on what popular government can do. Uh, we can't just make up the rules as we go. Otherwise, we can fall into tyranny. And the judges, you know, they're draped in serious black robes. There's a reason for that. And to attack their decision seems to be like, okay, well, you just want to change the rules now that you didn't get what you want. And sometimes that is what is happening. Um, The last time a politician really tried to tinker with the Supreme Court famously is Franklin Roosevelt's court packing scheme. Now, he wasn't doing what I think is a reasonable thing to do, but it looked like he was upset with the rulings of the judges, which, you know, judges seem to be good people, interpret the Constitution. And so it seems as if you're attacking the constitutional order. And most people don't have the time to spend to really get into the details to see why that's not always accurate. Now, um, you mentioned Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his plan to pack the court, the uh, the conventional narrative. And you can correct any areas that have uh, you know, been misinterpreted by historians over the last 80 years. But the conventional narrative is that the uh, the court was striking down a lot of New Deal legislation that was very important to President Roosevelt. And he proposed this plan to pack the court and allow himself to appoint a justice for every justice that was over a certain age, which would allow him to have a lot more appointments presumably appointments that would not then nullify uh, these pet legislative projects of his. And then uh, the court kind of, they got intimidated into not 
nullifying the uh, laws that were passed by Congress and signed by the president. In, in your view, did Theodore Roosevelt's candidacy and his attacks on the court and their uh, nullification of uh, certain decisions uh, regarding you know, business interests and so forth, did that pave the way uh, for his cousin Franklin's attack on the court 20, 30 years later? Uh, Yes and no, in that both Roosevelt's believed that the way that the court was interpreting the Constitution was out of touch with where both common understandings of the law were. And I I mean, I don't have the quotes from Franklin, but the quotes from Roosevelt, he believed that the court was out of line with how even older Americans like Lincoln or Washington would have viewed the Constitution uh, in the case of Franklin Roosevelt, though, and, and both of them are dealing with what's called the Lochner era, uh, a philosophy behind interpreting the Constitution we can get into if you want. Um, and But the threat of possibly tinkering with the Supreme Court is what, as you said, led to the switch in time that saved nine. And that was the West uh, – West Coast Hotel versus Parish or Parish versus West Coast Hotel, which upheld a state's right to have a minimum wage. Um, and so actually the threat, even though it cost them a lot of popularity, conservatives take back Congress, uh, resulted in the court kind of bending its way. Uh, it's a similar motivation, but Franklin is missing the point. Franklin is threatening to change the composition of the Supreme Court. I want my umpire's in there as opposed to the other teams, mm. whereas Teddy Roosevelt was saying, no, the people need a check on the power, not just let's tinker around with the membership of the court. Uh, interesting. And uh, that is such an important distinction. Franklin accepted the uh, the proposition that the court has the rule, the ability to nullify laws. And uh, Theodore was challenging that ability, at least aspirationally. Correct. Yeah, that's interesting. So you you use the phrase judicial supremacy in your piece and um, the way a lot of people use the term judicial review. Now, I know you have said you consider yourself a conservative. Why do not that you can speak for all conservatives, but why do, in your opinion, why do conservatives bow to this doctrine of judicial supremacy when there is a conservative Congress, a conservative governor, a conservative president? Why don't more conservative legislators or politicians do what Andrew Jackson did and ignore what the court uh, decides to do on in terms of nullifying a law, for instance? Well, I think it's because the well of nullification has been poisoned very badly by figures like John C. Calhoun, the Civil War, uh, the civil rights movement, other instances, and and that leaves a very powerful negative legacy in that direction, even though it can be used as a broad brush to criticize any attempts to criticize what judges are saying. But I think the conservatives tend to feel a loyalty, which I will admit I feel in my heart as well, to the system that we have, the Constitution as it stands, and believing that you know the judiciary is a part of that constitutional plan and that, well, you know, we have to honor the procedures and format and not get too rowdy with it. I think that that is a 20th century attitude, not a 19th century Mm -hmm. attitude. Mm -hmm. Where did the idea 
of checks and balances as it relates to the court and the legislative branch. Uh, where did that come from? Was it just uh, made up out of whole cloth in, in Marbury, or was there some movement for a check on the legislative passions of the day? Yeah, no, it's definitely not made up in Marbury. Well, I don't. judicial review is what we get out of Marbury, and we can talk about that. The idea of checks and balances, the division of powers, is an Enlightenment idea first. Montesquieu, sort of, uh, right? Yeah, Montesquieu, exactly, the laws. And he said he observed parts of that in the English parliamentary system. But then whenever we are writing, you know, they write the Constitution at the convention, and there is this great debate over are they going to ratify the Constitution. And many people at the time, many anti-federalists who opposed the Constitution, said this was going to concentrate far too much power in the federal government. And some of them even criticized the potential court. But James Madison, as well as John Jay and Alexander Hamilton, famously in the Federalist Papers, came up with arguments for why the Constitution was the real deal while it was good. And Madison famously articulated the vision under a false, you know, under Publius as his name, you know, said that the separation of powers, each branch will check the other, and thus we will prevent centralizing tyranny. But the idea of the Supreme Court having that powerful authority comes with Alexander Hamilton, really in Federalist 78, where he proposes – he doesn't say judicial review. That term doesn't come around till like 1914. But uh, he proposes a power that the, the magistracy, that the court will be able to uh, uphold strong laws against the popular passions and masses. And some anti-Federalists said at the time that, you know, well, they might be able to rule whatever they want. But in in and I've read uh, Federalist 78 and what Hamilton said there. But what he says, he was very specific. What he says is that they can they can do that only when there's an irreconcilable variance between what the legislature is doing and uh, and what the Constitution says. Now, if five justices can view uh, a question one way and four view it another way, I mean, that's hardly irreconcilable. But if uh, if they wanted to pass a law that said there's 105 senators instead of 100, that's a pretty cl- clear irreconcilable variance. I mean, I have to think that uh, we're light years from where Hamilton viewed the Supreme Court exercising this power. Oh, I, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, that basic position, and I'm going to, you know, this is a loaded term, but it's a textualist position. It's saying, okay, because we have to say, well, what is the Constitution? And we're, we're talking about a popular Constitution here. The Constitution was a popular document that was ratified by every state now, you know, by an electorate that today is sometimes criticized as being too narrow, but for its time was a very broad electorate. And the each part of the Constitution was proposed by delegates elected by the states, and then each amendment was passed and ratified by the states. And so what we have in the Constitution is popular law. And what the idea is, is that law has to be interpreted and enforced uh, but if if a judge begins to make up his own, you know, insert, you know, legislate from the bench, as it's called, um, that would be illegitimate. And Hamilton said, that, well, they, that won't happen. They'll be bound by strict precedents and procedures. Um, but the reality is, you know, someone has to make a judgment call. And you know, under judicial supremacy, we kind of accept that, that final judgment call is the court. But it was Teddy Roosevelt and others in the 19th century said, well, you know, maybe not so fast. 
Uh, talking with Logan Stag East, uh, he's a, a terrific independent historian in Louisiana that has uh, studied and written extensively about the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era. We'll take your questions shortly at one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We'll talk about some of the court, uh, ca- the, some of the cases the court has been deciding recently, and how that affects politics as we know it, the future of politics, and constitutional government in general. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. She would never say where she came from. Yesterday don't matter if it's gone While the sun is bright Or in the darkest night No one knows She comes and goes It is Tuesday. For some of us, it's a Ruby Tuesday whenever you get to listen to the Rolling Stones. Uh, Talking a little bit about the election of 1912 and the warnings that Theodore Roosevelt offered to the nation about the direction that we would be heading and the uh, alternatives that he offered in terms of getting the Supreme Court not to be able to run roughshod over the will of the American people. Here's a little bit of Theodore Roosevelt in 1912. In order to succeed. We need leaders of inspired idealism, leaders to whom are granted great visions, who dream greatly and strive to make their dreams come true, who can kindle the people with the fire from their own burning souls. The leader for the time being, whoever he may be, is but an instrument to be used until broken and then to be cast aside. And if he is worth his salt, he will care no more when he is broken than a soldier cares when he is sent where his life is forfeit in order that the victory may be won. In the long fight for righteousness, the watchword for all of us is spend and be spent. Uh, We're talking with Logan Stagg East. He's a historian that's written about this era a great deal. The Republican in that in that election, because Theodore Roosevelt, although he'd spent most of his political career as a Republican, he ran as the candidate of the Progressive or Bull Moose Party. And uh, Logan, I I am curious, uh, uh, President Taft has the distinction of being the only president ever to go on to serve on the Supreme Court. He'd had a pretty accomplished career as a judge and seemed very protective of the role of judges in general and uh, very, very responsive to any attacks that he perceived to be on the judiciary. How much of Theodore Roosevelt's criticism was personal because of Taft's history as a judge? That's a great point. And actually, uh, so the article we're talking about is a popular article I wrote, but a peer review article I wrote that is at at the same material focuses a lot on the judges who ran for president at this time. When Roosevelt ran in 1904, he ran against Alton Parker from New York, who was the chief justice on the uh, Court of Appeals in New York. And uh, 
he also Charles Evans Hughes ran in 1916, who himself left the Supreme Court to run for president as a Republican. And Taft was a judge in the 1890s. And then again, as you said, the Supreme Court uh, justice after being president. And so, I mean, part of it is personal, a lot of, or at least for Taft. Taft knows that he's not going to become president. He, he realizes that, but he wants to stop Roosevelt from becoming president because he believes Roosevelt is dangerous. He believes that Roosevelt is going to mobilize the people in a way that will tear down the foundations of a constitutional republic because Taft believes that the court is necessary to upholding that system. Well, and Woodrow Wilson was the Democrat who subsequently ended up yes. winning. And uh, where was he on the issues that Theodore Roosevelt was raising as it relates to the Supreme Court? So if if I'll be honest, Wilson, uh, he understood many things, but he only had he had vague opinions on the court and vague opinions on finance. So Wilson was really just trying not to upset anyone so that he could win, which is reasonable. Uh, but Wilson thought that talking, you know, talking about radically changing the court uh, as he perceived it was a dangerous step. And so ultimately he said, well, we need to pass progressive legislation, but the court is actually an engine for change and for reinterpreting the Constitution as opposed to the sort of stuffy conservative vision people thought Taft was promoting. But Wilson and Taft are both going to agree on the principle that the court's word is final. We need to go through Mm -hmm. the legal process. But Wilson will have the sort of living constitution model that we're used to talking about, whereas Taft is going to have more of a textualist approach. How did Theodore Roosevelt's views on the court jive with other prominent American leaders throughout history? Namely, let's say, maybe we could start with the other three people that happen to be on Mount Rushmore. <laughs> that's a that's a great way to do it. Um, so let's take Lincoln. Right? Lincoln, I quoted in the article a bit because Roosevelt's Lincoln was Roosevelt's hero in the way that Washington was Lincoln's hero. And Lincoln famously, you know, in the wake of the Dred Scott decision in 1857, one of the most infamous court decisions ever, um, Lincoln, you know, said that what the court is doing right now is wrong. And it's our duty as Americans to say it's wrong and to resist it because what the court did in Dred Scott was not, you know, textualism. What it did was it asserted the absolute right of slaveholders against the popular laws of the states, against the popular law of the legislature, and overturned the Missouri Compromise. Um, and with Washington, uh, admittedly, Washington, poor guy, never had much time to actually see the court in action. He died in, I think, 1799. Uh, Jefferson, uh, oddly enough, was the beneficiary of the Marbury versus Madison decision, right, because he was able to take get rid of some of John Adams's midnight justices. Mm. Uh, but Jefferson had a very obviously popular view of the Constitution. He's probably the most radical of any of the guys on that um, out of the four. And he thought, you know, the Constitution should be very freely amended as each new generation needed it. So uh, putting Washington aside then, because, as you said, he didn't say much about uh, uh, the court and really didn't um, you know, see Marbury in action, let alone the consequences of Marbury – Is it better 
for the people to make decisions about policy. There's a lot of folks that think, all right, the people could pass some crazy legislation. They could elect some crazy folks to the to Congress or to the state legislature that they might pass crazy legislation. Isn't it better to have uh, nine accomplished, brilliant legal theorists, even if they're whether they're conservative or liberal? Isn't it better to have those guys be sort of a cooling saucer on the on the tempers of the public? Why might it be better to have uh, some deference to the voters and to the uh, democratically elected representatives of the voters rather than the court? Well, we do need, you know, checks. It's always good to have a second look. But the people who the way it's actually played on history is not that way. The people who have made the radical sweeping changes to the common understanding of things are usually the court. Now, we do need the court to make sure, yeah, there is not a lynch mob. There is not some outrageous stripping of well-accepted rights. But usually, in the cases we're talking about, it's when the court takes a view and interpretation that is out of line with what most Americans are thinking. And no, I'm not talking necessarily about the recent decisions. You know, if you go back into the 20th century, when the Roe v. Wade decision was originally made. That was a very radical sweeping change in the order of things. If you go to the Dred Scott decision, uh, that shocked the nation. It was an upsetting thing. It wasn't the people who made a ridiculous law in 1857 so much as the court overturned the reasonable laws they had made. And the last thing I'll say on that so I don't go too long is that uh, you have to understand that the Constitution was made by the people. The court is is Mm. supposed to interpret what it says. And so, yeah, the people may do some crazy things, but the court may do some crazy things. At the end of the day, you know, the court can't – the court's will can't trump the will of the people in the long run. One of the phrases that um, I always hear thrown around uh, directed at me, I think it's from Tocqueville initially – And uh, whenever I talk about deferring to the people rather than the courts on policy matters is, oh, no, 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 you need to be careful about the tyranny of the majority. Uh, What what, what about that? How do we prevent 51 percent of of the voters from enslaving the other 49 percent? All right. Well, would you prefer the tyranny of the minority? (laughs) That's that's what I always say, which is what we have. Right. And and they're right. I mean, cooler heads need to prevail. Sure. But if you actually go if you go down the line and look at some when the court, the court is allowed to strike down laws that are flagrantly unconstitutional. Okay, that's that's fine. The court and I, I think the court should have first crack at those issues. But when the court just radically misses the mark, there needs to be a mechanism for the people to correct that because yeah we need to have informed decisions on things that's why we vote for legislatures and we don't all do it ourselves okay but when the legislature messes up we have a right to recall them we have a right to throw them out of office and so um you know the tyranny of the majority is is a problem but there is no perfect solution either ultimately sovereignty lies with the people or it lies somewhere else and in America, there really is no – I mean, can you justify a longstanding minority uh, rule in any kind of case? No, you really can't because all of the rights that we hold dear, 
say the First Amendment, right? Well, who gave us that right? I mean, we can say on a moral level, maybe God or the Creator, but in practice, a legislature gave us that right. And that's something that has to be remembered is that all these rights that protect the minority were granted by the majority. Uh, Talking with Logan East about uh, the Supreme Court and uh, Theodore Roosevelt's case for a popular constitution. You mentioned even conservatives who've been hurt by judicial supremacy now accept it for the most part as just a, a modern pillar of government, just the way that things are these days. Is this loss of what I'll, I'll call power from the Demo- from from the people, is this loss of populist power irrevocable in your view? Well, unfortunately, things tend to have to get pretty bad before changes are made. That's just how we kind of operate as a people, right? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And the real tricky part here is, which we touched on last time, is uh, as long as it's working for your team, it's really hard to convince yourself to change it. And the people who are empowered to change it are those who have won elections. But those who have won elections are also in a position where they might appoint justices. And so the frustration is really the frustration of the political minority, and that makes it difficult to accomplish much change. Do I? Well, and, and let me put it this way. Uh, if something's wrong, we have to say that it's wrong, and we can't really concern ourselves with political right. uh, likelihoods because that's the kind of thinking that ensures nothing ever changes. Like, you know, was the abolition of slavery likely in 1840? No, it was not, but people said it was wrong. The um, Where do you come down on the issue of ending life tenure for Supreme Court justices? If that were to occur, do you think that would make it more likely or less likely that the, the justices would be so cavalier with disregarding the uh, clearly stated will of the voters on issue after issue? No. And and I actually am, and this may seem going counter to what we've been talking about. I am really, I don't think any reform as to term limits or shuffling is really going to fix anything because all you're doing there is saying, uh, I want to be able to choose the justice with supreme power more frequently. I think the judges do need to be insulated from the people as far as terms. I don't think they should run for office. They should be able to make up their minds and be able to read the law, study the law, study history, and say, no, this is what I honestly think the law is, right? They, should, they shouldn't be fearful of the people and give them just what they want. Um, but if they do err in a significant – because the judges, by and large, are good people. They don't stay up in the middle of the night thinking, how can I deprive the, the people of their rights or, or deprive sure, them of sure. their popular sovereignty? Um, they should have the first crack in an independent kind of way, uh, but it's only in a rare – we're talking about a small handful of landmark cases, right, that are the problems. And so I'm not talking about, you know, the daily uh, many, many cases that come to the court that really are kind of arcane legal matters. The um, Well, for instance, here in New York, um, the decision to – uh, do away with New York's, uh, you know, restrictions on concealed carry weapons. A lot of folks in New York, New Jersey, California believe that they should have the ability to regulate gun laws as they see fit. On the other hand, uh, with the abortion restrictions that were removed in Roe versus Wade, that was taking away that ability from uh, from the voters. It is. Um, it is. So, if the solution is not 
Um, what is the solution, do you think? Theodore Roosevelt, yeah. as we said last time, was a little bit vague in terms of how he would address this. He didn't necessarily have a uh, a concrete plan for how the voters should be able to redress the Supreme Court's errors. But what's yours? Well, if if you don't mind, can I get to the specifics of, of the first please, issue yes, of the two-court case issue? So uh, we need to think carefully because so often in the public – discussion, we turn into a, they're overriding the will of the people or, or whatever. Let's look at the specifics of what was decided in each case. So in the case of the New York gun law that was overturned, uh, if I have it right, um, New York had passed a law which said that in order to get a concealed carry permit, you had to submit a, a rationale, basically a stated need for it, and the review board would decide whether or not that was uh, reasonable. And the court said, no, that's putting that's basically leaving it up to a bureaucrat somewhere to decide whether or not you get to own a firearm or hold a firearm in public, because I don't believe New York has open carry. Um, And so the argument was, well, the Second Amendment says you have a right to bear arms, and this is kind of putting an arbitrary limit on that. But that at least has a Second Amendment grounding. Now, you can disagree with the judgment. That's it's a judgment call. Whereas in the case of Roe v. Wade, it's it, you're right, it's doing the same thing. It's Roe versus Wade said legislatures can't prohibit abortion, so the people can't make laws. Like this says New York can't prohibit firearms in that way. Uh, but in the case of Roe v. Wade, the basis was a vague right to privacy discovered mm. over a long period of time in the 14th Amendment, which was meant to grant citizenship to people, especially freed slaves. And so one is, a, in my mind, a greater leap of logic. But what's the solution? Um, it's difficult. What I proposed in the article is just sort of throwing out there was something that I called a, a dissenting majority, which was a play on John C. Calhoun's concurrent majority. Um, and I said, well, maybe if you could have two versions, right, maybe a supermajority of Congress or 30 of the 50 states, something like that, could vote to reverse a judicial ruling or to uphold a statute that was passed as a sort of popular check. It would need to be high. We don't want it to be 51 percent. Otherwise, you know, it turns into a very flippant thing that's done all the time. We don't want it to be that way. We want it to be similar to an amendment process, but admittedly easier than a constitutional amendment. All right. Uh, I have been uh, hogging your wisdom, and a lot of people are very eager to talk with you. We will take folks' phone calls next. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll continue with Logan East straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. She comes on like a rose, but everybody knows she'll get you in touch. You can look, but you better not touch. Poison eyes. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, joined for the hour by Logan Stag East. We'll take your calls momentarily, 800-848-9222. He is a scholar of the progressive era, the Gilded Age. Uh, by the way, Logan, the, the word progressive has sort of become anathema to conservatives. They picture sort of a, an imaginary hybrid between Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, de- right. you know, putting all the uh, conservatives in internment camps somewhere. Should that word progressive be anathema to conservatives? As I mentioned, Theodore Roosevelt did run with the progressive party in 1912. Um, well, as as long as these terms evolve over time, and what I point out in the article, and I point out especially in some of my other work, is that at the time in the progressive era, Roosevelt called himself a conservative, and he called himself a progressive. Taft called himself a conservative and a progressive. Wilson called himself a conservative and a progressive, because both of them were, all of them were thinking in evolutionary terms. They thought that we should conserve what was valuable in society. At that time, any sane statesman thought of himself as a conservative. He wanted to keep the inheritance from the founders, but also they believed that society progressed. We could improve on things and become more civilized. Today, there is really no consensus uh, in the political spectrum Mm over traditional values, over what our history is, what it means. what And so really, I mean, conservative doesn't it, – it's a disposition, but what are you conserving? Are you conser- Most conservatives today don't really like the America they look at when they see it. So are you trying to conserve it or are you trying to go back? Progressives, similarly, you know, can't really call them conservatives except in the sense that they want to conserve – Roe versus Wade, but that's just the 1960s and 70s. So, it, it, no, we shouldn't we shouldn't treat a term like it's you know uh, voodoo or black magic or something to be avoided. It's just a word that changes over time. Diana is in Manhattan. Hello, Diana. Hi. Uh, as always, you do a great show. Okay, now, Clarence Thomas is an originalist. Apparently, he wants to go back to the 1700s. Now. Loving versus Virginia and the Emancipation Proclamation were not in effect during the 1700s. If he repeals gay marriage, he cannot cherry-pick what he's going to repeal. I mean, if we're going to go back in time, maybe we should go back completely. And where would that leave him? Well, also, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation was before the 13th and 14th Amendment, Diana, so it's not as if either that would, would bring back slavery. But I'll let, uh, I'll let Logan answer. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, I mean, well, actually, Diana, I, I mean, I, I disagree with some of the details, but I like the general direction you're going in the sense that, well, if you're going to make an argument, be consistent. And if you've got Clarence Thomas in the room, he's going to tell you probably that, yeah, he, he would – well, he probably wouldn't repeal uh, Virginia versus Loving based on his understanding of um, the 14th Amendment. Uh, But he might roll back Obergefell. Now, I don't believe most of the justices on the court were willing to do that, but uh, was Obergefell uh, reasonably grounded in the 14th Amendment? Uh, I mean, they wouldn't have said that until 2014, Mm. so maybe so. But, But to your point, would states then criminalize gay marriage if Obergefell were overturned. I definitely don't think so. Roe versus Wade is overturned, and many progressive states have doubled down 
on abortion rights while conservative states have gotten rid of them, whereas gay marriage, uh, the conservative movement has not been as aggressive against that as they have with things like abortion. Uh, but if you're being legally consistent, then I think probably Obergefell would go in Thomas's originalist worldview. But I wouldn't I wouldn't push him on Virginia versus Loving. I know that's kind of a hip thing to do, but uh, Thomas has a pretty broad view of personal liberty under the 14th. 800-848-9222. Robert is in Manhattan. Hello, Robert. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, sir, I have a particular incident I wish to ask you about. During the administration of Andrew Jackson, I think you will both agree that one of the darkest chapters in American history, barbaric as it was, was the Indian Removal Act. Now, if I remember right, 15,000 people, simply because of the fact that there were gold-hungry folks in Georgia and North Carolina who wanted the lands, caused Andrew Jackson to simply take all those tribal people, 15,000, ship them 1,000 miles out west, where 4,000 died. We know the story of the Trail of Tears. They still tell it in the Cherokee circles. Uh, The court, I believe, in that case said, no, Jackson couldn't do it. And what did he do? He dismissed it. He said, let the court defend their own action. Um, Uh, uh, Any any reaction to Jackson's defiance of the court, Logan? Yeah, that's a great point, actually. And it is one of the darker chapters in American history. And I would say to you that you're you're absolutely right. Um, what Jackson did was was frankly wrong. And he, the apocryphal quote is, you know, Justice Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. The joke being that he has no army to enforce it. But that's just the point. Right. Ultimately, our rights are not defended by the court. Our rights are defended by the people. And when the majority chose tyranny, there was no court in the world that was going to stop them. The only thing is the court can really uh, temporarily frustrate them if they're willing to listen. But if a bad majority is really going to do something tyrannical, then there's not a court that's going to stop them. You end the uh, the quote in um, an American Affairs Journal with another quote from one of my favorite historical figures, uh, James Garfield, about who gets to rule. What did Garfield have to say about who gets to rule? Garfield said, and it's it's a cool quote, he said, you know, the sovereign right of the people to, to make and unmake constitutions resides solely in them and is transmitted to each new generation of voters. And he, you know, also talked about the high court of public opinion and of war. And what, I mean, Garfield lived through the Civil War. And what Garfield saw in the Civil War was ultimately it was not court decisions that decided who was free and who was unfree, who was in the union and who wasn't in the union. When push came to shove, it came down to Americans, you know, fighting it out. Now, hopefully not in an actual war, but your rights are only defended if you and your neighbors are willing to defend them. And and I believe he understood the people's sovereign power in that very real respect. And I, I kind of think he took that experience into that quote. Um, There is a case coming out of North Carolina that uh, could reach the Supreme Court and have some pretty interesting consequences. It has to do with um, a a theory called, um, you know, the the independent state legislature doctrine, which would essentially allow the state legislature to 
select a slate of electors pledged to a candidate, irrespective of how the voters may have uh, may have voted in that state's election. And in theory, anyway, that could uh, deliver a state uh, to, uh, uh, you know, a presidential candidate that didn't win it in a popular election. This has a lot of folks that were leery of, um, you know, some of President Trump's conduct in the aftermath of 2020 has them very nervous. This could certainly reach the Supreme Court. Uh, have you had an opportunity to look at this case and where where do you see it and how do you think the court will come down on it? Well, the what they're referring to is because in the Constitution, it says basically the way that elections, federal elections are decided and allocated shall be up to the legislature of each state. That's what it says. And whenever the Constitution was first, whenever we first started out as a republic, right, most states did not have popular elections. They had legislatures decide. And then eventually the legislature saw fit to devolve those decisions to popular votes. Um, But in theory, the constitutional authority lies with the legislature um, and they choose to have popular votes. Well, you know, it's it is difficult to say. Because the counter argument is that, well, a court should be able to validate things, because how do how do people speak to make laws, but through their representatives? Um, So it's it's a difficult one. I don't know how the court will come down on it, to be perfectly honest with you. If they came down in favor of the legislature, it wouldn't terribly surprise me. Um, But I also don't think. I mean, I, I well, I don't want to say it's not going to be a big deal. I don't know would be the short answer. Uh, Chris is in the Catskills. Hello, Chris. Frank, you need to invite this guy to your barbecue and pay his travel. Uh, you'll write a book one day about uh, politics, Frank. You have too much intellectual curiosity and knowledge not to. Uh, I think right now the court is using uh, the bench to set policy. Uh, and I'll give an example. With the Roe v. Wade case, a friend of mine brought up the option of uh, Indian nation territories in states like South Dakota and Oklahoma opening up abortion clinics because they're not subject to uh, federal sovereignty. And then within a week after Roe v. Wade being overturned, there was a case that went under the radar and not reported uh, where they actually took that sovereign power away uh, within a week later. So that is something that I'm essentially throwing out there for discussion. I think the legislative branch right now has become the weakest branch in government for a number of reasons. The number one being that they're, all they do is campaign and raise money all the time. I think a three-year term for the U.S. House of Representatives would help solve that problem because that would give them an extra 12 months to actually set policy and make laws. Uh, my practical experience with these types of things, if you look at it, uh, County executives uh, can set policy in their budgets if the county legislatures aren't doing their job. Right, Chris, we're just uh, about out of time here, so I'll, please bring your thought to a close, and I'll uh, ask Logan to respond. And, and, sta- and I think state budgets do the same, like, say, Governor Cuomo. And unfortunately, the state legislature, they only have uh, 58 to 60 scheduled days, and they're, they're only in business, like, less than four months out of the year when you take the vacations out. The state legislature in New York, can't compete with the executive branch because the governor's and his aides are in business 12 months out of the year. Thank Thank you, Chris. Any reaction to sort of uh, how the legislative branch has been weakened um, because of practical concerns like the ones that Chris mentions? 
Well, I, I largely agree. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think it was H.L. Mencken who said, or Bernard Shaw, I forget who, but, but they basically said that democracy is a form of government that guarantees that the people get exactly what they deserve or exactly what they want in kind of a dark humor sense in that our, our voters and also our legislators have become lazy, for lack of a better word, and gradually over time gave away lots of authority and basically, you know, the executive sets policy. And they're supposed to vote up or down on an issue, and they've lost a lot of their independent role as the originators of laws and policies and commissions and investigations, uh, because even the investigations they do now are mostly meant to rally up people for elections more than actually get to the bottom of something. Um, and so I, I largely agree with what was said. Is the Supreme Court too busy making decisions about constitutional law instead of deciding cases, in your view? Meaning, uh, you know, cases that... Again? Is the Supreme Court too busy making decisions about constitutional law instead of deciding individual cases that may not be confirming or or nullifying certain right. legislation? Not necessarily. Um, I think most of them would be happy outside of the spotlight, honestly, uh, and they get thrust into it a lot of the time. And a lot of cases that are not very significant go unnoticed all the time, and it's just the big ones that we pay a lot of attention to. I think that 90 percent of what the justices do is totally fine. Uh, but on the big issues that really are consequential, uh, there should be some kind of popular opportunity to check those. Um, Logan, I could talk with you all day. Uh, hopefully we can chat again soon. I very much appreciate you being so generous with your time. I know it's a late night and it's a big ask uh, for you to uh, give this amount of time and uh, sound this intelligent this this late. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, and, and any time, Frank. You have a good one. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you could give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Coming up in a moment, we'll talk Tony Danza. What other show can go from the Supreme Court to Tony Danza? This is The Other Side of Midnight. Aliens, the Supreme Court, Tony Danza. You never know what you're going to get. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morning, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Do you know what era we are living in? You know, we're talking about the progressive age, the gilded age. You know, there's all these different eras of society. You know, the Great Depression, the Jazz Age, the whatever, the Victorian Age, you name it, the Enlightenment. We are uh, 30, 40, 50, 100 years from now. Do you know what people will refer to this era as in terms of popular culture, and entertainment. I am pretty certain they're going to call the era that we're living in now the reboot remake era because it seems like everything that comes out is a reboot, a remake, a sequel, a reimagining. There, there, I mean, there are very few new ideas on television and in movies, everything that seems to be popular, uh, popularly pushed upon us 
is a reboot. You know, we had the re- the uh, recon- the continuation of Roseanne, which became the Connors. Yeah, the remake or the continuation of Murphy Brown. They're doing a reboot of Battlestar. They did a reboot of Battlestar Galactica. Now they're doing a reboot of Babylon 5. We've talked about this. They brought back the X-Files. They brought back Sex in the City. Sometimes you just need to let sleeping dogs lie. Now, one of the shows that they're bringing back now is Who's the Boss with Tony Danza and Alyssa Milano. They're doing this with a network called Freevee. I've never even heard of Freevee. I don't know how we got to an era where there's all these networks, so much to keep track of. But anyway, uh, we had Tony Danza on this show maybe about a month or so ago. And I was struck by one thing, that when I said that Tony Danza was going to come on the show, and hopefully we'll get him back. He's performing again in New York in September. So hopefully we'll get him back uh, to promote that show as well, because he was really just such a great guy. Here's the thing that struck me. I don't know that I've ever mentioned someone on the radio, except maybe Curtis Lewa, that's had so many people calling in and offering a personal story about that person. When I mentioned Tony Danza, people called in and said, yeah, I saw Tony Danza on the bus and he got on the bus and got off. Then uh, there was a story about Tony Danza being at a restaurant and taking a picture with someone. And it was really interesting to me the fact that so many people had so many Tony Danza stories. It's almost, in some level, on some level, like Bill Murray. There's that whole documentary about him, Stories of a Mythical Man. So I kind of let my imagination run wild with me. And I said, I wonder if I ask people on, on, in the aftermath of this decision to bring back who's the boss, can you tell me a personal experience that you've had or observed with Tony Danza? Simple as that. What would it be? Give me a personal Tony Danza anecdote. 800 800- 848 That's 1-800-848-9222. Now, uh, Tony Danza not only played Tony on Taxi, Tony on The Tony Danza Show, Tony on Hudson Street, but, of course, Tony on Who's the Boss? You have a date with my professor? Oh, well, yeah. Well, she is just about to grade my midterm exam. Put a smile on her face, Tony. <laughs> Coming on, Mona. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I do wonder, that show worked very well for its time. I wonder if it's going to do as well now. It's Sometimes the humor from different eras, I see this a little bit with some of the Buster Keaton films when I watch them these days. Some of the um, humor from different eras doesn't always translate as well. Sometimes it does. I think Seinfeld is just as funny now as when it came out. I think The Honeymooners... Just as funny now as when it came out. Some other shows, they don't necessarily age as well. So I'm curious if this particular uh, this particular show, Who's the Boss, will age well with the times. Uh, Tony, you are in the bathtub taking a nice bath. Yeah, so why don't you do that for us? Oh, Mother, this is just ridiculous. Oh, Angela, get with the game. <laughs> 
right now, Tony. Make it real. What what do you do when you're taking a bath, huh? Are you enjoying it? Yeah, I'm really into this. You know, my fingers are starting to wrinkle here. So I, I think that's a clip that probably loses something. I didn't see the clip, but I imagine he's uh, mimicking uh, being in the bathtub. That probably loses something, not seeing the the visual there. But uh, Tony Danza, as a domestic worker working for Angela, played by uh, Judith Light, uh, he was always sort of in this kind of struggle to not be referred to as a maid. And my housekeeper, Tony Maselli. Hey, how you doing? Housekeeper. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, you could call me the maid, but I wouldn't. No, no, housekeeper's my first choice. How about those jets, huh? <laughs> so tell me a story that you have involving Tony Danza. I'll tell you, out of all the celebrities that I've met in any field, uh, musician, politics, athlete, whatever the case may be, Tony Danza stands out as among the the nicest ones I've ever met. The The only one who I would say came across as maybe, and, and it's comparable. I mean, it's not much of a competition. The only one that I would say that came across as maybe even more friendly and more honest than Tony Danza was Kelsey Grammer. When, when I met him here at the radio station, the guy was as nice as can be. And then when I asked him to come on and uh, talk about his beer event in Atlantic City and just uh, what all whatever other things, he was just so incredibly friendly off the air and on the air. So I'm excited. This is another one of these shows that they're rebooting is Frasier, which was itself a spinoff of Cheers. So <laughs> they're bringing back Frasier. I have to tell you, yesterday I saw one of the funniest things on YouTube that I've seen in maybe years. Some fans have recut a trailer for Frasier, and instead of it being a silly sitcom, they've made it a dark thriller where Frasier is trying to kill Niles. It is the funniest thing in the world, and I linked to it. It looks real. It looks like this is what they're really doing. I have linked to it on my Facebook page, and I thought everybody would understand pretty clearly that this was a gag made by fans. Sure enough, people are commenting on the video saying, I can't believe they're doing this. Are they really doing this? But if you watch it, I guess you can understand why. It does look real. So if you want to watch that, it's on my Facebook page, uh, facebook.com uh, slash MoranoFan. I think it is absolutely hysterical. And that includes the description. The, the description on the uh, the trailer says, Frazier's back. Dr. Frazier Crane resurfaces after a 20-year absence, but with his return comes a reckoning that will alter not only the lives of those he once loved, but the very foundation of Seattle itself. Emmy Award winner Kelsey Grammer reprises his role as the renowned psychiatrist and radio personality in the chilling conclusion to the Frasier saga. This video has now gone viral. It's got over 1.2 million views. And this viral video includes all sorts of spliced together clips from the original series with a really chilling rendition of the theme song. Um, It's really 
very well done. Whoever made this, my hat's off to them because it's really well done. 800-848-9222. I want to hear a Tony Danza story if you've got one. Let me begin with Stan in Fort Lee. Hello, Stan. Uh, hello, Frank. How are you doing? Great. Good, good to speak with you. Yeah, uh, Tony Danza, backstage at New York Pops at Carnegie Hall. I'm a violinist, play with the New York Pops. And this is several years ago. And it's real simple, but Tony Danza passed me by in the backstage area, uh, saw an expression on my face, and I have no idea what that expression was, but he made a really funny joke, and that's it. I never forgot the moment, but I can't remember the joke. But it was funny. It was. I can picture him passing me by, and I do remember him performing with us, and he was a joy, you know fantastic guy thank you. uh such a talent um and i have a bill murray moment as well since you mentioned bill murray sure go ahead yeah we've we've talked about okay. what he does with people right um uh as a club date violinist i'm called to play parties etc i was called to play a gig at bill murray's new apartment in manhattan and um both myself and the accordion player are at the door, knocking at the door of his apartment, and he answers himself, pulls the door open, slips a little on his uh, socks, no shoes, on a totally empty apartment, it appears (laughs) to be, uh, uh, with the brand-new finished floors, and he's sliding around kind of like a, a, a kid having fun, and he called us in, and we had a lot of fun playing for, for him. For All right. Hey, that's not bad, Stan. That's not bad. Thank you. Tell me a Bill Murray story, 800-848-9222, original Rick in New Jersey. Hello, Rick. Hey, good morning, Frank. Uh, yeah, I, w- I was bouncing for a S&M club in like the early to mid-'90s, and Tony came in with some people. And, to the and S&M really, club? Yeah, but Frank, you got to understand, these clubs have become like a tourist attraction rather than the actual S&M clubs. They were the place to go after hours just to, to look and see. 90% of the people were just walking through like a museum, just watching people do things. It wasn't, you know, Madonna, all the big stars. It was the place to go just to see what was going on. Like, like people used to go slumming at one time just to see how the other people lived. That's the way they did it. So he came in, and he was the nicest guy. He was just, hey, how you doing, blah, 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 blah. He shook my hand. He went in. He was looking around. He was asking people, you enjoying that? Yeah, oh, good for you, blah, 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 blah. And he just left, and it, it was he was just the nicest guy in the most bizarre situation. He was still Tony Danza. You know, that's what I really uh, you know, respected about I him. I love it. Thank you, Rick. 800-848-9222. Paul in Astoria, tell me a Tony Danza story. Good evening, Frank. Yes, I have a great Tony Danza story. Um, he was working the feast at San Gennaro at uh, the Oliva stand and serving up sausage and peppers and all the great foods that that stand has um, for the feast. So it was interesting to see him running around back from the kitchen to the feast, serving up sausage to the customers there. It was just a really great experience just to see how down-to-earth he is. And, and what a pleasure it was just to see somebody um, you know, performing in that manner. Uh, hey, uh, not bad. All right, Paul. 800-848-9222. Do you have a mythical Tony Danza experience or encounter? 800-848-9222. Dave is in the Bronx. How are you doing there, uh, Frank? I'm well. Listen, uh, 
there was a place called Elaine's, which I'm sure you know. Oh, about. sure. I, I used to see Tony there. That's where I met him for the first uh, time, actually. Yeah, I met him there, and I was in that neighborhood because I would go to some events at the 92nd Street. Why sometimes? Whatever. And I walked over, and he came in with a friend, another male, and I said hello, and he wasn't friendly. Maybe he was waiting to see somebody. I've seen him. I enjoy him both on Taxi. I saw him on Broadway. And I'm not making him like the worst person in the world, but he wasn't friendly. He didn't even say hello, which wow. I was a little surprised. Wow, that, that, that goes and uh, I don't ask people for autographs, but that's not my style. Well, see, that but he really, he, maybe he was waiting for somebody whose mind was elsewhere. I'm standing right next to him. I had a drink, and I just said hello. And it just, I don't know. I'm not a bad guy. So he just wasn't friendly. That's, but he, I enjoy him. That's enjoy very him. interesting. That goes, uh, that goes, uh, that's at odds with what we've heard from everybody else so yeah, far. Not, I, listen, I've heard him. I've heard him speak. You had him on. I've heard other people. Joan Hamburg had him on. Didn't he own some kind of, uh, what was it, a bakery? A uh, cheese shop. Or a, a cheese shop. shop. Yeah. Cheese shop. Does he still own that? You know? uh, I think he sold it. I mean, I, my understanding is it, he uh, it was it was the oldest cheese shop in uh, New York. It was called uh, Oliva, and I think he he uh, or I think he might still be a co-owner. I got to look it up. But it, it was the oldest Listen, cheese. I enjoy seeing him when he's on something, and there's something Hamish about him, you know, in everything he does. He enjoy and what he does, which I will praise. He helps kids with the uh, with acting. He works with uh, young people, and I give him all kinds of credit to do that. Very really. interesting. Maybe you caught him on a bad day, uh, Dave. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. That's very interesting. By the way, this is the last thing I'll I'll um, mention on the Frazier and Kelsey Gra- Grammar front. The, um, you know, my wife and I are watching the TV show Cheers, and uh, we're almost done. We're episode. We're at season nine. And so watching season six episode, season nine, episode six, and it's an episode called Grease. And there's this running gag throughout the episode because Rebecca, the Kirstie Alley character, her boyfriend is in jail. So Sam is teasing her about her boyfriend being in jail, and he keeps trying to play a song on the jukebox and on the radio and a bunch of other places. And I couldn't make out the song, but it's a gag. I mean, it happens three or four times, and then the laugh track goes into effect. And I can't figure out, and I mean, I'm sure I saw this 30 years ago when the episode aired, but I can't figure out why people are laughing at this. And it bothered me, because you could tell the song was kind of catchy, but it bothered me because I couldn't make out what the song was, and I didn't get the joke. And the worst thing for me is not getting the joke. I would rather um, I would rather suffer untold misfortunes than not be in on the joke. Okay, whatever the joke happens to be. So, even though I was kind of busy when I first got to the radio station last night, what's the first thing I do? I look up this episode of Cheers to see what the song was that they're playing. Sure enough, here's what happened. The way that episode aired, that joke, that gag was funny because every time Sam puts on the radio or the jukebox, 
He's playing I fought the law and the law won. But they couldn't get the rights to it. So when it airs on Peacock or when it airs on MeTV or somewhere else, they have edited that song out and replaced it with another song. It's sort of a generic song that I couldn't tell what it was. And now the gag makes no sense. The, that aspect of the episode, which is a pretty significant aspect of it, is ruined. So they replaced I Fought the Law with this generic music, and the music being played is part of the gag, so it's very unfortunate. I guess they couldn't get the, the musical rights. So that was a real bummer. 800-848-9222. Uh, Gino in Brooklyn had some uh, terrific insight into Tony Sirico yesterday. Let's test his Tony Danza knowledge. Hello, Gino. <laughs> this is this is going to be the, a combination of the two. That's why I'm calling. Oh, uh, wonderful. Well, well, and alone. hopefully tomorrow you'll have a Tony, uh, a Tony Darrow story. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, you know, I do. I bet, right? I bet. This is all pop related, but uh, Tony Danza actually has a photo of myself, my father, and Tony Sirico together. Um, whether you know it or not, and you said you've met him up, uptown in the lanes, I met him there as well. Maybe even met him with my old man. Um, he has a fascination, Tony Danza, with photography. That's one of his interests. He loves taking photos of other people. That's his thing. So we, we would be out and about, and he'd be whipping out cameras and taking pictures of people all the time. We found it kind of odd. Like, you know, normally, you know, the fans want to jump in with him, but he's taking pictures of regular people and, and making conversation about that. He is a very humble, down-to-earth guy, and he's a, he's, a, he's a treasure of a human being and a New York ambassador, without a doubt. So you're, you saw Tony Danza just taking photos of other people? Taking photos of me. Uh, of you. He's taking oh, from geez. me, Tony Sirico, and my father. That is and we're all some... in photo together. He possesses that photo somewhere. Well, th- see, that's <laughs> interesting. I'm going to have to ask him about that when he uh, when he comes back. But, um, uh, you know, your dad is uh, a real fashion plate. So he had a way of dressing that folks would – he would sort of immediately draw attention wherever it was. So I'm not totally surprised that Tony Danza would look to photograph him. I remember your father told me a story about meeting – David Chase one time, and David Chase came over to him and said, you know, you're the best effing dressed guy in this place. And it was a place filled with, with actors and everything. So uh, that it was the same place. That's the same place where Tony has our photo. That is in that same room. That's pretty interesting. I'm going to have to ask him about that. Thanks, Gino. Neil's on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Frank. I got a double. I'll start with Bill Murray. Uh, I was driving a livery car, and I got a call to pick up a Murray at the Parker Meridian. Uh, sure enough, he gets in the back of the car and he says, are you for Murray? I said, yeah. I turn around and I look and I say, hey, Bill Murray. I, I couldn't believe it. I actually uh, put the car in park and turned around and almost flew over the back seat to shake his hand. I was so excited to see him. So uh, took a ride going through Central Park. He's telling me stories about uh, when he was on Saturday Night Live and uh, when he was in the park. uh on the on a, on one of the um, the horse rides, uh, the carriage rides, how they were drunk and uh, carrying on. Uh, that's the only thing I remember out of that story. Um, to get his autograph, of course. Uh, and as for Tony Danza, uh, my cousin Chloe uh, was in his class when he was a teacher at Northeastern High School. He did a, I think it was a two year series on A and E. He was an English teacher. I think he was credentialed also, and uh, they became very close. Uh, and he hung out with our family uh, in Philadelphia, 
and uh, she became an international model. And uh, now that you tell me that he's coming back in September, I got I got to call her to see if maybe she wants to come back into the states to meet him again. Yeah, well, I think uh, I think that would, he'd get a real treat out of that. I mentioned that to him uh, last time that he was on, so I, I think I'm sure that he would enjoy that. Thank you very much, uh, Neil. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We're going to go through the mail in just a moment. If you want to get a letter in, uh, you can do so by uh, emailing me frank dot morano at uh, com. That's frank.morano at, at wabcradio.com. You can also send me snail mail. I love snail mail, although they did write the raise the price of the postage stamp, so that's kind of a bummer. But you could send it to P.O. Box 1777, the other side of midnight, just saying, attention, Frank Morano. P.O. Box 1777, attention, Frank Morano, New York, New York, 10163. So you could send uh, that uh, that here. But, uh, you know, somebody commented on Facebook that um, I didn't do anything to mention the raising the price of the postage stamp. Well, I mean, what am I supposed to do? I'm not going to mention every problem that exists in the world on every show. And I've just mentioned it. Are you happy now? All right. Now, postage stamp problem solved. Now that I've mentioned it, the problem's as good as solved, right? Same thing with the Supreme Court. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Mail, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is a song you will not hear if you watch Season 9, Episode 6 of Cheers. And uh, then there's a whole joke in that show that you will not understand because this song is not playing. So now that I've told you, you can go ahead and rewatch it and then play this song in your brain, even though it's not playing in the uh, in the actual episode, at least if you watch it on Peacock or on MeTV. All right, uh, without further ado, those of you that prefer the written word to the spoken word are about to have your day. It is time for... Not something I normally do, but this is a message that was sent to our Facebook group. And you can join the Facebook group at um, just by going on Facebook and searching Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. And it's written by another broadcaster at another radio station, an all-news station. And he does a great job. And he's a seasoned broadcaster that I listen to frequently. Um, and it's Wayne Cabot. Wayne Cabot wrote this yesterday. Frank, your 4 a.m. obituary for Tony Sirico was outstanding. You clearly poured a lot of work into all the audio you grabbed and the stories you told. Captivating. Well, that's awfully nice. Now, when somebody of Wayne Cabot's ilk 
says that something is captivating. You know what? It is. It is. So I want to thank also um, both Alex and Kenneth, who did a uh, a great job in helping assemble all of those uh, audio cuts. I uh, neglected to give them proper credit yesterday, but uh, they were they were essential in uh, in grabbing a lot of that. So thank you to both of them. Uh, all right, this is an email from Fred on the subject of Tony Danza. He partnered with Mulberry Street's most colorful character, Cha-Cha. After Cha-Cha died, his wife broke the partnership, so the story is told. Ask him about Cha-Cha. Unfortunately, Oliva is in danger of being evicted. Ooh, I hate to hear that. Thank you, Fred. This is uh, an email from Victoria. Good morning, Frank. It was from uh, this morning or yesterday. Finally getting back to you. What a great show last night. I listen to the whole thing since I couldn't sleep, which is rare for me. If I can't sleep, it is the full moon, and maybe it was that because it will be full in a few days. I really like the discussion on autism. I'll write more another time about it since I wanted to share. I also like the recent conservative guy. I think that's uh, Mike uh, Mike Achopoli. I, um, I have a story a little similar, although I never was a Democrat or admired them. I was just apolitical, although love JFK and RFK. My beautiful transition was in 2016 with Trump. It's a good story, but I'll save it. Today I'm writing to tell you that I'm a longtime user of distilled water and wanted to tell you my history with it. First, I'll tell you that it is safe and it's a myth that you will hear from people that you need other water because of minerals. I've always been... A calcium, magnesium, I have always taken a calcium, magnesium supplement and other vitamins since I was 20, but not for the reason of distilled water. Oh, and my health, absolutely stellar. I am sure I must have a very young biological age. During the pandemic, I never had the fear, just knew I was immune. Never wore a mask on the street. After getting over the initial fear, of course, I've been a longtime vegetarian and hardly ever drank alcohol. Now I do enjoy a vodka in reasonable amounts, not a fan of wine or beer. I make distilled water every day at my house. One gallon in about five hours in a very well-designed machine. I'm on my second machine. The first one lasted 25 years until a few years ago. Before that, in the 1980s, I would buy gallons of distilled water because I love the flavor. I am sensitive to the taste of water. I forget when or how I even drank it to find out I liked it, but I do remember loving the taste and wanting to drink it and drinking more water. Not sure when I got a Brita since I do have that around as well and have for a long time just for improved taste. I think Brita used to take more let out, but I don't think it does now. So um, she also writes, this is kind of lengthy, but uh, she says, I have a question about finding the music on the Facebook page. I don't know where to look. I'm a very high-tech person, but don't understand things on Facebook. I am not on there much. Is there an actual list each day? Also, is there an actual list of topics each day? There's not an actual list of topics each day. uh, Because sometimes some topics are prepared days in advance, sometimes hours in advance, sometimes weeks in advance, and sometimes no time in advance, sometimes seconds in advance, kind of whatever's on my mind at any given moment. But uh, if you want to see the songs that we play... Just join the Facebook group. You can go to Facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. And then we post them every day there uh, around 6-ish, usually. Um, 
Al in Mary in Maryland writes, Frank, congratulations on going syndicated nationwide radio. I know I'm a bit tardy catching up on your after midnight show, but I catch up every night while eating dinner, usually at 10 p.m. from the great WABC app, and enjoyed hearing your commentary on just how out of line Senator Al was about Rudy and is cursing repeatedly live on air with Mr. Katsimatidis. If I were John, I'd probably forbid him from coming on live anymore until he cleaned his filthy mouth. Just wanted to ask you if you know of any local Baltimore or Tampa, Florida radio stations that carry your syndicated show. Thanks, and again, congratulations. No, as of now, we're just in Nevada on the Nevada Talk Network, which is just fine for me. Uh, But uh, if you want to reach out to a show, to a station in your area, Go ahead and do that. Tell them you want to see them carry that show. And if they're not owned by Cumulus or iHeart, I don't see why they wouldn't want to carry this show. Uh, This is an email that I got from Bernard Getz, who's a regular listener to this show. And I emailed Bernie to ask him if he wanted to come on the show to talk about the Alba case. Because if anybody can comment with authority on the Alba case, it's Bernard Getz. Um I'm not going to read you the whole email because there's some private stuff on there. But he says, no thanks, but it's a similar dumb posture by the DA. And then he gives, you know, some commentary on what the current state of local government is. (laughs) And I can't believe Bernie Getz finishes his email to me with this. Is it getting a little out of hand? What's going on between Curtis and you? I don't think you should have sat him next to the Gaudis at your wedding. That was out of line. Maybe you should apologize to him and say it was a screw-up. That might patch things up. Patch things up. Costs nothing. Let me repeat for the 9,000th time. Curtis is not annoyed with me in the least. Curtis is... is uh, First of all, Curtis and I, our relationship is wow. as good as it's ever been. I did not seat Curtis next to the Gaudis at my wedding. They were on opposite ends of the room. They did not interact at all. There was no interaction. I don't think they saw one another. Uh, The extent, I think, to any interaction they had is Curtis was dancing with his wife on the dance floor, and John Gotti Jr. came over to me, and he said to me, hey, do you think Curtis would mind if I cut in with his wife? That was the... That was the totality of their uh, their interaction. Um, Tom writes, um, hi again. You'll be talking with Brian Kilmeade in a bit. And just to mention that I watch him regularly in the morning on Fox and Friends. Such a great analyst and speaker. I get a kick out of Greg Gutfeld's show, too. Very funny when he pokes fun at Kilmeade and the best in banter when he's on as a guest. Anyway. Look forward to your upcoming interview with him, too. That's awfully nice. Yeah, Brian has been coming on every every Tuesday, excuse me, every Thursday, and people seem to like that. So uh, I think uh, we'll, we'll keep doing it. This is uh, an email from Aldo. Aldo writes, this was uh, six days ago. He writes, hey, Frank, topless bathing in Nantucket? Really? Do your regular listeners care about this? My wife and I, when we wake up at the 4 a.m. hour, turn the radio on to you. Typically very entertaining show. We don't get into podcasts to take in the entire show. But this is a waste of time. Of course, 
There is so much wrong with our world that requires discussion. Flights of illegal aliens from the southern border to Westchester's White Plains Airport, Stewart Airport, and others, and so much more that affects our lives. I think your listeners don't give a hoot about people in Nantucket walking around on their exclusive beaches topless. The the Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, misspelled, by the way, can do better than that. Notwithstanding this segment of today's show, you remain a friendly voice in the dawn hours for us. P.S., focus on this, the cost. Probably now in the billions of dollars of these ridiculous investigations being conducted by completely partial congressional committees and special prosecutors, the American aviation industry with with stranding thousands of people. So there you have it. Uh, let me let me squeeze in. We'll do we'll do two more here. This is from Joe Frank. There's a simple way to eliminate most of the cancellation happening on Twitter. Eliminate anonymity. Keyboard warriors wouldn't be so cruel and destructive if they had to use their real name when they demand harmful consequences for someone they target. Otherwise. They get to be as outrageous as they please with the only possible effect on themselves is having to delete an account and create a new fake one. Isn't that interesting? Uh, and uh, by the way, I just got a follow-up email from Bernie Getz. Whoops, I screwed up about you and Curtis. <laughs> I'm glad he's listening. See, you never know who's listening to this show. Uh, one more here. This is from Anna. Frank, I always appreciate that you mention Alan from time to time, Alan Combs. He was an old and dear friend, uh, and I miss him terribly. And, yes, he was at his very best on his overnight show. Couldn't agree more, Anna. Um, Alan Combs was a heck of a nice guy, a brilliant communicator, uh, an incredible entertainer, and a guy with a tremendous sense of humor, if you ask me. I miss him a great deal. And, um, you know, Alan, um, about seven years ago, he had asked me, to come produce his radio show at the Fox News Channel. And I thought about it, and ultimately I chose not to uh, because I was be- I had some other opportunities that I was, you know, uh, that I was pursuing. And I always wondered, uh, not, if I had known that Alan was going to die just two or three years after that, would I have, uh, would I have accepted that? And I don't know. Um, but I do miss, I do regret the fact that I never got the opportunity to work with Alan on a daily basis because he was such a great guy and uh, someone that I learned a great deal about radio from. All right, that concludes this edition of. Uh, this strikes me as as good a time as any to give Matt Blaze an opportunity to comment on uh, the forthcoming barbecue on Saturday and uh, his response to the letter I sent him and uh, whether or not we can expect an RSVP on this front. Uh, Matt Blaze, do you have anything that you would like to add on this front? Well, I want to read this invitation. Well, go ahead. I will, I will silence my microphone. So this is the invitation that I got from, from you about the barbecue. So you're right. I don't know that you'll ever be able to fully appreciate how exclusive the invitation you're about to receive is. Rachel and I 
are having a barbecue at our residence, and there's a hard out at 8 p.m. Starts at 2 p.m., hard out at 8 p.m. You're invited. I came up with a first draft of folks who I had hoped we could invite. Rachel decimated the list by about two-thirds. There are some very painful omissions on this list, but the good news is you made the cut. We hope you can come. Rachel has asked me to stress that we have no swimming pool. No swimming pool. And are unlikely to have one installed by then. Our landscaper, Joe, was a little unhappy at the volume of people we had last year. He's a bit like the mechanic that Brad Garrett played on Seinfeld. Yes. Which has only steeled Rachel's resolve further in limiting the number of invitees. I had hoped that we could make this a no mobile phone slash wireless device event. Yes. But Rachel felt that people might want to take photographs or make audio recordings or at the very least have a mobile phone available to them in case of emergency. So mobile phones will be permitted for this event, but they're strongly discouraged. Yes, absolutely. Lastly, there are a bunch of folks who Rachel used her preemptory strikes against who I'd like to invite, so we've compiled a backup list. If you can't make it, please let us know as soon as you're able so that I can move to the backup list. There will be standard barbecue fare. We'll look forward to seeing you, Frank. Yeah, I think it's a very nice invitation. If I were you, I'd be, uh, I'd be thrilled with that kind of a, an invitation. Now, here's the thing. You had said before that when you made this list or when you were inviting people to the barbecue, it was Rachel's idea that you invite your current coworkers. Yes, she that, said yes. that you had invited former coworkers. That's right. And that you should invite current coworkers. That's right. So it's really not you inviting me, it's Rachel. No, it's me, uh, but at her suggestion. But you wouldn't have if she didn't make the suggestion. I, I would probably, if I'm being totally honest, not have invited you. See? And I would have invited Alex. Because there's no chance you were going to come. Alex comes to things once in a while. You don't once know that. Yes, I do. But you still have to invite the person yeah, for them I, to well, say and no. I clearly did. Now, well, I did. Now, here's the other thing. Yeah. The backup list. Yeah. Is there an order to the backup list? In other words, if I say no or Alex says no yes. or anybody on yeah. the first is there an, an order that you go, okay, yeah. this uh, is the guy ready? up here? What's, yeah. the, what's okay. the order? Uh, so I'll tell you who gets invited first on the backup list. Um, Fred Cerullo. He's the first backup list invite. Then uh, Have you moved to the backup list at all n- yet? Uh, no, because not enough people are RSVPing. <laughs> So I don't know. Well, because most people don't RSVP a barbecue. I know. They just show up. I was also going to say, you know, and I mean, you did just sort of disprove it, but how do I know that? Because who in their right mind, when they send an an invite to somebody that was on a backup list, how do they say that they weren't on the backup list? I'm going to show you this. The, The people in green here are on the backup list, okay? And as you can see, there you are listed at number 80, 86. Other guy who works on your show? Yeah. That that's was, what it says? Other that, guy that is, who works on your show? I'm just another guy to you? Well, no, not to me. To <laughs> my, the person that made these edits to my initial list. No. I, got, I got to be the other other guy. That's, that's right. Yeah, the, the list exactly. is compiled before you worked here, in fairness, Kenneth. So. Now, do, do people on the backup list know about this barbecue? I, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Have you, Some uh, people who were on the first list 
thought they were on the backup list, which they were not. But I'm going to I'm going to drill down. I'm going to spend a good portion of the day today gr- drilling down on these RSVPs, and then I'm going to move to the backup list. Because I'm I'm wondering if, is the backup list like when a university puts you on a wait yeah, list? Exactly. Well, and, no, but, okay. and you learn about no. it. You're on the wait list. Well, see, I would like to let the backup list people know that they're on the wait list, so they so, have the day free. So they <laughs> exactly. So they're exactly. ready. And right. just in case you decide to invite them, yeah, you, I, I think, de- you you deign to uh, right. allow them into your humble. Now, how, how, how many people are on the backup list? Uh, well, on this current version of the backup list, my backup list would be much larger. But it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I'm counting couples here. Like uh, that's uh, like when I say seven, that's right. couples. Okay, not not seven couples, seven people. Okay, seven, eight, ten, twelve, fourteen. 16, 18, 19, 21, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 32, 32. Who's number 32? Uh, the the Fruchtmans, my uh, my wife's my wife's uncle and uh, his his wife. Geez, better hope they're not listening. Well, they have a good sense. Well, of that, that's the full backup list. You and Rachel. Yeah, it's just one list. Yeah. Well, now, did Rachel approve this backup list? Yeah, she she moved these people to backup status. Did she approve this invitation? The, what What do you mean? Which the invitation, invitation that you sent to me? Yes, and to Alice. Oh no, not the verbiage. No. So she, I, I, I didn't I think she. Yeah, I wouldn't have approved yeah, that. Proofread this if at I all. Were her. No, no, not at all. No verbiage is it. So when can we expect an RSVP from you, Mr. Matt Blaze? Well, I'm thinking it. about it. I, th- I think Matt's deferring this university. <laughs> I, I don't. I'm not. Defer- I'm not saying he, yes, and well, I'm not saying no. Yeah, he's he's, I, he's I got, got better plans. Well, right now, I didn't even say that. Uh, you, that backup invite could go to Fred Cerullo. Could go to the Fratellones. Could go to the Marys. Could go to the Gatulos. Could go to Joe Sabilia. You never know. I mean, I think you were right, though. You can't expect him to Taurus VP to this thing, right? Yeah, right. it's go just not going to happen. Deb Valentine. You never know. Did she RSVP? No, she didn't make the list yet. Oh, she's, yes. she's on the backup, backup, backup list. list. Yeah. She's on the backup list of the backup list. Yeah, uh, which I felt bad yeah, That'll be about. awkward yeah, going I out in the hallway bad. later. Hi, Deb. Oh, you didn't make it to the list uh, yet. No, you know, no. backup list. Yet. All right. Um, uh, all right. Well, I will look forward to your response, and uh, we will get, get through it. By the way, I am hiring uh, someone to help staff this barbecue. Last year, I hired two people, and um, my wife... Uh, Made me uh, to made, she made me promise to limit it to only one so we can keep costs down. So I I talked to this lady and I sent her money. It's ninety. It's um for two four hours I think or three hours. It's um one hundred eighty dollars. So I I talked to this lady and I Venmoed her ninety dollars, and she said you could pay the balance on uh, Saturday, and she said uh, she I'll send you a receipt later. So last night she sends me a receipt. And it's just got beautiful cursive handwriting. It says, thank you, Lucille. And it says what I'm paying for. And I just said in response, I don't think Lucille quite gets my humor um, or my sensibilities, for lack of a better description. She just responds. I no, I respond to her, this photo of the receipt that she sent me, by saying, lovely handwriting. And she says, what does that mean? I said, I don't know. But it is impressive. So, um that's that. That's where we are with uh, with things. This is the other side of midnight. You can comment as you see fit. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. 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 
other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Start real slow. She's gonna love you tonight now. If you just treat her right now, I'll squeeze her real gentle. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. By the way, just to finish on that uh, barbecue conversation, if you're someone that is actually personally friends with me and you weren't invited, don't feel bad because honestly, we mostly tried to limit it to people that were geographically close to us and to have something resembling. A reasonable number of people, because I will admit last year with 100 people was a little out of hand. Um, now, if you weren't invited last year, then, okay, I don't blame you for being offended. But as far as this year's go, you know, you know, I don't know if, uh, you know, you shouldn't feel bad about being invited. And it's going to be 86 degrees and there's no swimming pool. So it's going to be very hot and uncomfortable. We're trying to make sure everybody understands that. All right. Um, you know what I learned last week? is you know who is spending a bundle of money on lobbyists in Washington? The Ukrainian government. The Ukrainian government is spending a whole bunch of money on public relations and lobbyists. And is it any wonder um, they have been the recipient of a lot of money? From the U.S. taxpayers. So these, um, I don't have the specific numbers uh, in front of me. I misplaced that article. But uh, you have this, this situation where the Ukrainians have waged this incredible influence campaign, hired thousands of, uh, excuse me, not thousands, but hundreds of lobbyists or firms, spent millions. And they've gotten billions. So the other thing is, by the way, some of the lobbyists that they've hired, most of them former lawmakers, have gone from working for the Russian government to working for the Ukrainian government. Isn't that interesting? These lobbyists have no qualms about just switching sides as these two countries are are warring. So I think this goes to show that lobbying is pretty effective. Ukraine has unleashed this incredible influence campaign in Washington. Uh, there's a lag to the filing of lobbying disclosures. That's one of the reasons we don't have specific numbers. But even in the lead up to the war last year, Ukraine's lobbyists made, ready for this, more than 10,000 contacts with Congress, think tanks, and journalists. That is higher than the well-funded lobbyists of Saudi Arabia and experts on foreign lobbying told Vox.com they expect that this year's number is going to grow much higher. So the lesson here is if you want the United States to 
come to your aid financially or militarily, the best thing that you can do is hire lobbyists. And by the way, Japan is still reeling after the assassination of their former prime minister, Shinzo Abe, a few days ago. And it's led to a whole lot of assessments of his political career and his stances. Now, he is probably the most influential politician in Japan in the 21st century. Okay. And despite stepping down from the leadership, he was very outspoken on a whole lot of political issues and a whole lot of foreign policy issues. Very outspoken in continuing to campaign for a harder line against China in foreign policy and uh, on North Korea. But there was one area where he was very dovish. Ukraine. He was very critical of the uh, Ukrainian government and their president, Vladimir Zelensky. In May, the former prime minister alleged that Zelensky's stance on Ukraine joining NATO and their refusal to resolve the conflict in the Donbass regions had paved the way to war between Russia and Ukraine. This is a quote from Shinzo Abe. Maybe the war could have been avoided if Zelensky had been forced to pledge that his country would not join NATO or had been forced to grant a high degree of autonomy to Luhansk and Donetsk in the east. So it is interesting. That's an aspect of Shinzo Abe's life that you've heard very little about since, um, you know, since he was killed very tragically. Uh, One of the other things that you haven't seen much about is that there was a poll uh, of Ukrainians, and most Ukrainians say that both Russia and the Zelensky government are responsible for the war. A majority of Ukrainians also say the U.S. and NATO are at least partly to blame for the ongoing war. Why is that something we've heard nothing about in the American media? Gee, I wonder why. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Grant, your influence counts. Use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, so, by the way, there's still a big debate. Those of you that are listening live have been hearing these um, commentaries that I've been doing at the top of the hour exclusively for WABC. So there's a big debate about whether they should be included in the podcast or not. As I mentioned earlier, um, my inclination is not to include them. So this way, the people that take the time to listen live have something special just for them that the Johnny-come-lately podcast folks don't get to hear. But eh, part of me feels like we should have a little sympathy for the podcast folks, too. So one of the things that I'm thinking of doing is making that available 
not on the other side of Midnight podcast, but on the Frank Morano interviews and more podcast. So if you're not following that, be sure to search Frank Morano interviews and more. And maybe we'll put those up there. So this way you're covered. So you got to subscribe to, uh, you know, to both. So that's what we'll do. Uh, all right. Hey, you know what's interesting about the Boris Johnson situation? Uh, Boris Johnson, of course, was the former prime minister in the United Kingdom who is now, uh, a na- at 51 years old, at the moment anyway, kind of a national laughingstock. The conservatives don't want anything to do, on, do with him. The liberals don't want anything to do with him. And he was somebody that uh, folks had very high hopes for. Right. He was sort of considered a character. A lot of Americans really loved him because I think if I remember correctly, um, no, I was going to say, I think his mother was American. I got to look that one up. I, I'm, I, I'm, I know Churchill's mother was American, but I'm not sure if uh, Boris Johnson's was. So we'll p- put that aside. OK, I'll look that one up. But he was somebody that was popular in America. And here is a guy who I think has done. The full Andrew Cuomo, meaning he's gone from somebody that was the toast of the town to being totally derided and belittled. Now, he hasn't gone as far in either direction as Andrew Cuomo did. Andrew Cuomo was being talked about as a presidential candidate. They were begging this guy to take multi-million dollar book deals. The big question for Andrew Cuomo was, if you were a New Yorker, didn't matter if you were a Republican or Democrat, do you want Andrew Cuomo to run for president or do you want him to run for vice president? And then I was one of the few people saying, you know, excuse me, the emperor has no clothes. He's not doing anything. He's not saying anything. He's just talking. And, and, and most of what he's saying is inaccurate. So um, he was the toast of the town during COVID. And then slowly but surely, it turns out, well, maybe we don't like that he, all these credible allegations of sexual harassment. Maybe we don't like his handling of the nursing home situation. Maybe we don't like the fact that he's using his taxpayer-funded staff to work on his book that he's getting paid millions of dollars for. Andrew Cuomo is really someone that went from being in the eyes of the media, and I'm going to go ahead and say in the eyes of the public at large, being an American hero to an American zero. And I think Boris Johnson, while not being American, has done the same thing. He went from being a a media hero to a media zero. And I'm curious, in whatever field we're talking about, who else has been has made that transition from being the toast of the town, celebrated, people rush to take selfies with you, people just can't celebrate you enough, they're giving you book deals and awards, and you're getting invited on national TV shows and national radio shows, and then that's Monday, come Tuesday, you are a national laughingstock. You can't get arrested, and a victory for you is you're not a punchline on one of the late-night comedy shows. Can you think of anybody else? 800-848-9222. I made a list of a few. Um, One of the people Bernard McGurk has mentioned that has gone in a similar, has made a similar transition from American Hero to American Zero 
And by the way, if you want to add to our list or help us craft it, give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Is, uh, one of the people Bernie McGurk says has made this transition, and I'm not sure he has totally made the transition to full disgrace, but Bernie makes a pretty convincing case that Anthony Fauci is somebody that was celebrated, toast of the town, and now, at least in a lot of people's eyes, he's not that anymore. I, I mean, he still is popular with a certain segment of the population, and he still has got a very influential role. So it's not like he went from toast of the town to public disgrace. But who has? Who's gone from being American hero to American zero? You know what I was thinking of? And I was trying to find the clip, but I couldn't find it. There's a wonderful film called The Hudsucker Proxy with uh, Tim Robbins and Jennifer Jason Lee and uh, Paul Newman is in it. It's got a great cast. It's it's really well done. It's a very funny film. And it's a, I mean, it, it's just great. It's, it's, it's about 30 years old. It's really a good film. And um, in that film, it's directed by the Coen brothers, right? When they're, they're every, I love everything they do. But in that film, this character played by Tim Robbins is just like this. He's this young, aggressive titan of in- industry who's the toast of the town, getting awards, getting keys to the city, uh, being called by the president, who at the time was President Eisenhower. And then a little later in the film, something else happens, and the the opposite happens. They're locking him out of the city. The president calls him to tell him how disappointed he is in him. The board of directors at his company wants to fire him, and he goes from that same situation in a fictional sense of American hero to American zero. Who else has that happened with in any field? Sports, athlete, athlete, uh, politics, you name it. 800-848-9222. Now, the easiest way to go from uh, somebody that's celebrated to somebody that's ridiculed is to have a major scandal. That's what happened with uh, Bill Cosby. Obviously, Bill Cosby's criminal conviction caused him to go from being um, America's dad to uh, America's pervert, essentially. Uh, O.J. Simpson, had he not uh, gotten arrested 30 years ago, he probably still would be doing things like Hertz commercials and Naked Gun movies. Anthony Weiner, he was this close, even after a scandal, from being the mayor of New York City. And then he ends up in prison. And uh, Bernard Carrick, to some extent. Now, Bernard Carrick's reputation has made a bit of a comeback in the Trump era, but he's somebody that's viewed, I think, very negatively along political lines. I think... Conservatives tend to like him and uh, progressives tend to not like him. But he's somebody that has been sort of sort of saw that transition because after September 11th, there was there was nobody more celebrated than Bernie Carrick. And then after he ended up going to prison, that wasn't the case. So 800-848-9222, if you could think of anybody. Sarah in Wisconsin, a state well known for their cheese. Hello, Sarah. Frank, I would have to say one of the first people that came to mind was Bill Cosby. Yeah, uh, that's a perfect example of somebody that was as celebrated as can be. And then now uh, I think very few people would even want to be seen publicly with him. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's a good one, Sarah. Thank you. You know, it's always interesting to me to see the people that 
can survive these scandals. I think the, no better example than Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton um, was impeached and had that whole thing. Uh, you, you know the issues better than me. And now, even in the Me Too movement, when people are looking at folks like Woody Allen anew again, you really have, he's still just incredibly popular, particularly among Democrats. And uh, Ralph, you know, one of the things that I think is covered in this new Liz Smith book about Andrew Cuomo's scandal is that Andrew Cuomo was telling his aides, even at the height of his scandal, that he wanted to be like the former governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam. And he wanted to just soldier on and survive the scandal. And he pointed to Ralph Northam. And all I'm thinking is, how tone deaf is this guy? When the person that you're aspiring to be is best known by the majority of Americans for wearing around uh, wearing blackface and then not resigning, um, that's not a great spot to be in. So if you can think of anybody else, um, uh, let me know. 800-848-9222. Matt Blaze, do you have anybody? You're usually pretty good with this. Uh, I was thinking Elliot Spitzer. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, that's another example. Spitzer, uh, like like Weiner and the others, they basically go because of a scandal to public disgrace in pretty short order. And it's all the same kind of scandal. Harvey yeah. Weinstein. But I don't know that Weinstein was ever looked at the way Bill Cosby was looked at True. by the public. By the public. Yeah. I think Weinstein. People knew that he would chase younger girls. People knew that he was abusive to his staff. Um, he did get to hang around with presidents and people like that. But he never was somebody that I think the majority of Americans said, oh, man, like, like Tom Hanks. If Tom Hanks became scandal plagued, that would be a, a transition like that. But no one ever said, oh, I wish Harvey Weinstein would run for president or that Harvey Weinstein is such a great guy. I think people viewed him as somebody that um, that was a skilled film producer and a well-connected one. I don't think they viewed him the way they viewed Andrew Cuomo or Bill Cosby. Personally. What about uh, Chris Christie? Yeah. Not really. Nah, yeah, Kinda, you know what? But... I don't think he was ever as celebrated as Andrew Cuomo was. Uh, and then I don't think he fell as fast as Andrew Cuomo was, even after Bridgegate. Because the fact that he could still get a job after that tells you, you know, Cuomo is sort of an untouchable now. You know, I mean, right. at least in a lot of quarters. 800-848-9222. Who's gone from American hero to American zero? Teresa in Port Washington. Hello. 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 Anthony Avenatti. Michael Avenatti. Oh, Michael Avenatti. Yes. Michael yeah, unless Avenatti. Anthony's his brother. That's a good no, one. No. That's a good one. See, the thing, Michael Avenatti, in some respects, is um, he was never really celebrated by everybody, but he was celebrated by the left. They were talking about him as a presidential candidate. Uh, and now, yeah, he convicted felon multiple times over, uh, <laughs> lawsuit, went to prison, publicly disgraced, disbarred. That's, uh, that's a good one. I think this thing that separates somebody like Avenatti from a Cuomo or a Cosby or an O.J. Simpson or a Bernard Carrick or Boris Johnson is that these guys weren't just popular with one segment of the political community. They were popular with everybody. I mean, you had people calling themselves Cuomo sexuals. You had uh, Billy Crystal interviewing Andrew Cuomo, uh, uh, you know, around the Emmy Awards. I, I mean, 
Nobody, no governor gets that kind of celebrity treatment. But Andrew Cuomo did. He had crossed over from being a politician to being a mainstream celebrity. And people viewed it, not me, but people as a whole viewed him positively. 800-848-9222. Tommy is on Staten Island. Who has gone from an American hero to an American zero, Tommy? Charlie Sheen. Charlie Sheen. That is interesting. That is an interesting one. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think that might fit the bill. Uh, it might fit the bill. See, Charlie Sheen can still work, though, can he? So Cosby can't work. Charlie uh, Sheen just admitted to everything. You right. know, like they went, hey, I, I'm, I'm with uh, hookers and doing coke. And he's like, yeah, I am. Now what? Now what right. are you going to do about it? Yeah. You know what I mean? He just sort of accepted it. And it kind of made him Teflon. Because once you, once you run and try to deny, that's when you get in trouble. If you just admit it. Right. You're right. Then they go, all right. Well, Although sometimes no that strategy works, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, it didn't really work that well for Governor Patterson. When he first became governor of New York, he would admit to this, he'd admit to that. One week he admits to uh, infidelity in his marriage. The next week he admits to drug use. And then all of a sudden he gets nailed for going to a Yankee game. I mean, so it doesn't always work. Sometimes it works. doesn't always work. 800-848-9222. Ellen uh, sent me an SMS text message, and you can too, at 8168-MORANO. She said, and this is a good one, and I'm sorry I didn't think about this, Charlie Rose. And now that we're in the kind of Me Too mode of thinking about things, I think the same thing could apply to Matt Lauer. The guy was the face of morning network television. And the guy went from being, you know, again, not somebody that was divisive along political lines. Everyone liked Matt Lauer until they didn't. 800-848-9222. Mark is in Rochelle Park. Hello, Mark. Hey, Frank. Good morning. Uh, I would submit Tiger Woods. Now, if you recall what happened with Tiger, you know, what he, he was in, the infidelity and some drug use. But the people turned on him so quick. And he was on the precipice of almost being a political aspiration of being a senator, of changing the world. So I'd submit Tiger Woods in that category. That's not a bad one. Not as good as the example that was just emailed to me by Chris Sorrentino. This is a great example. Um, Lance Armstrong. Lance Armstrong was the face of athleticism. He was the face of comeback stories, of coming back from cancer. Now, Lance Armstrong is a national punchline. That's really the kind of example that I'm looking for. Somebody that was celebrated all over town. Somebody that you could say, oh, you know who our keynote uh, speaker at our dinner this year is going to be? Lance Armstrong. And then people rush to spend $5,000 a table to meet him. And then a month later, you can't, he, they can't get arrested because they're so untouchable. Oh, Lance Armstrong's going to be there. Oh, I'm, I don't want to be there. That's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. See, Chris Christie, he went from being popular to unpopular. Tiger Woods, you could make a case that he had something of a comeback after the infidelity and everything. Um, Lance Armstrong, there's no comeback there. Uh, the guy went from toast of the town to just toast. 800-848-9222. That's the kind of example that I'm looking for. Gino in Connecticut, who has gone from American hero to American zero? Hey, Frank, good morning. Morning. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, 
the mayor of America to the big zero. Yeah, I, I don't agree with that one because I, I think like Carrick or like Fauci maybe, um, Giuliani remains popular with conservatives. So it's true that he don't no longer has that kind of crossover appeal that Andrew Cuomo enjoyed during the pandemic. But it's not as if he's publicly disgraced with the pu- public at large. You know, um, a guy like Bill Cosby, doesn't matter what your politics are. You don't want to be around Bill Cosby. Giuliani, that's not the case. I think half the country still views him largely as a hero. 800-848-9222. Lou is in Middle Village. Hello, Lou. Yeah, good morning, Frank. Um, I, I think uh, Kevin Spacey, the actor, yeah. and, I, and, t- and two ball players on the Mets, I would say Dwight Gooden and um, Lenny Dykstra, because they were promising ball players uh, that had a lot of potential, and then they fell from grace with the drug abuse. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I would agree on the Dykstra front. Um, I don't agree on the Doc Gooden, because Doc Gooden, even after his drug use, he was able to make a comeback, was able to pitch a no-hitter again, and then even in retirement was able to build himself a kind of a reputation as a personality. He goes, goes to events. Charities want him at their events. Uh, he writes books. People want to buy, buy the books. Nobody wants Lenny Dykstra at their charity event. That's really got to be the standard. Do I want this guy at my charity event? Do I not want this guy at my charity event? See, no one wants Bill Cosby at their charity event. You want you want uh, Doc Gooden, right? I mean, that's, I think, a good... A, a, a good barometer. By the way, congratulations to Keith Hernandez, number 17, now retired by the New York Metropolitans. And uh, I was very glad to hear on the Cats at Night show yesterday with uh, Peter King, uh, them do that segment with Art, Art Shamsky celebrating the fact that Gil Hodges is uh, going to head to the Hall of Fame. Great day for uh, all New York baseball fans. Uh, let me say hello to John in Suffolk County. Hello, Joe. John. Hey, Frank. How you doing? Good. Uh, so I, I'm going to mess up his last name, but he used to be the Attorney General of New York, uh, Eric uh, Eric Schneiderman. Schneiderman. Eric Schneiderman. Yes. That's a good one. So he was literally the champion of the Me Too movement, and he was throwing everybody in jail. And it turned out he was tying up and beating them in, in his uh, in his living room. Uh, that is a perfect example. Uh, Eric Schneiderman is a good one. Mark is in Norwalk, Connecticut. Hello. Good morning, Frank. Um, I'm not sure if this one might be too old, but how about John Edwards, the presidential candidate? No, that, that, that's a, I think it does. And if you I, I don't think, you know, we can look for other examples throughout history. Somebody that I also think uh, fits that description. And this is going back many years. Senator Joseph McCarthy. People were 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 they viewed Senator McCarthy as a hero. Tail gunner Joe. And then but he was censured by the U.S. Senate. I think that's a uh, I think uh, Edwards is a similar example. Lenora is on Long Island. Hello, Lenora. Hey, good morning, Frank. How are you? Great. Thanks. Now, um, what I'm thinking is the entire face of the Democratic Party. I mean, look at Joe Biden. He came into office and he's destroying domestic energy. Um, Chuck Schumer was dancing in the street when uh, uh, Joe got elected. Kathy Hochul in New York, um, yeah, she came in, and now she's adjusting all these gun laws. See, I, 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 don't, the I, don't, I, I don't think that fits, because I think they're just folks that you disagree with politically. Kathy Hochul just won her Democratic primary with 70% of the vote. 
She's, you know, uh, the odds on favorite to get elected governor now. Joe Biden is still liked by about 40 percent of the country. If you're a member of Congress or you have a charity and they tell you President Biden's coming, you don't say, oh, no, 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 no. We don't want him. He's not invited. You say, oh, great. The president's coming. Same with Chuck Schumer. You may not like him, but he does remain popular with uh, a wide swaths of the country. Frankie is in Glendale. Hello. There's nothing like dying in jail. Uh, Sheldon Silva. Ah, that's Uh, a good one. Might be too local, but uh, he was up there. He was indeed. He was indeed. Again, though, Shelley, he's got the disgrace part covered. You got to view it as a ratio, right? Um, The top number is how popular you were. If you're only popular with half the country, that's a five. Okay. Um, If you're popular with everybody, that's a 10. Uh, Like uh, the Dalai Lama, he's at a 10. Who's going to come here? Mother Teresa, she's at a 10. Who's going to complain about Dalai Lama or Mother Teresa, right? They're at a 10. And then it's how far you fall. If you end up in prison and you're publicly disgraced, you're at a zero. If you're just publicly disgraced without going to prison, maybe you're at a three. So what we're looking for is people that are a 10-0 or at least a 9-3. You know, um, Shelly Silver, I think at best, he was a, f- a, a five zero because Republicans never liked Shelly Silver. A lot of Democrats didn't like Shelly Silver. So he really, I don't know that he got over a five. He's got the disgrace part covered, but he was never really viewed as a hero. Lance Armstrong, that's a 10, that's a 10 three. That's a 10 three. Robert in Suffolk County, hello. Good morning. Good morning. I would say. Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I I don't agree for the same reasons. I I don't think Hillary was ever popular with Republicans, and I don't think she's been disgraced with Democrats. So I would characterize Hillary as a as a five five um, at at best. Right. Mark is in Manalapan. Hello, Mark. Good morning, Frank. What about Rachel Maddow? Well, I don't think she was ever popular with people beyond her base, was she? Does she not represent a good portion of mainstream media? No, I don't think she does. I think she represents um, um, you know, a good portion of left-wing media. Okay, you might have a point there. But how, but and how was she disgraced with left-wing media? A lot of what she was saying went down as being complete nonsense. Yeah, well, that happens with all sorts of media figures. I don't think, you know, she's in danger. First of all, she still has a job, and they're paying her millions of dollars. So if that's public disgrace, sign me up for that right now. Ivan is in Woodhaven. Hello, Ivan. I think I have a 10-10-10. Okay, well, we're looking for a 10-0. Uh, well, okay, that's what I mean. Okay. Uh, you ain't got me, you ain't got Dick Nixon to kick around anymore to a landslide victory in a presidential, as a president-elect to fall in disgrace as a president. Yeah, I think if we were doing this radio show in 1976, uh, that would be accurate. Uh, but I, his reputation recovered pretty significantly by the time that he died. Um, in 1994, when he died, there were five or six presidents at his funeral. Presidents aren't showing up at your funeral if you're toxic. Now, 1976, you're right. But come by the time it was all said and done for him, I don't think so. 
Uh, Anthony in Liberty. Hello, Anthony. Hello. Hello. Uh, how about Sheldon Silva? Yeah, I, I, I don't think Shelley was ever popular beyond his base. I don't think he was ever super popular with Republicans. Stevie is on Staten Island. Hello, Stevie. Hey, how's it going? Good morning, my friend. Good morning. How, was, uh, how about Dr. Fauci? Yeah, I, he was one of the first people I mentioned. So oh, I I think uh, that certainly fits the bill, at least with, with conservatives. He, you know, he's never ended up in prison. He still has a job, and he's still celebrated by some quarters. He was just built up so much that uh, I don't know that, um, you know, that, that he kind of fits the bill, but not like Lance Armstrong does. Lance Armstrong, Bill Cosby, Boris Johnson, Andrew Cuomo, those are 10 zeros. Felix in Astoria, hello. Hey, good morning, Frank. How are you? Morning. How about uh, Jared Fogel, the face of Subway? Oh, boom. That is perfect. That has got to be the best example that we've we've come up with today. That All is his endorsements, perfect. everything. This was a guy that was not only incredibly well-paid, incredibly famous, but became the face of acceptance of public health. And then I don't know that there's something that's even more damaging to your reputation than being outed as a child molester. That is perfect. That is the perfect example of going from American hero to American zero. That is outstanding. Well done, Felix. Billy in Long Island City. Hello. Hey, Frank, Michael Jackson, the greatest fall from grace in the that's history a, of the world. That's a good are, are one. Are you guys kidding me? That's the, a good the one. The biggest one ever. Yeah, that's a, one bigger. That's a good one. Yeah, I think the only thing that – I'd put Michael Jackson at a 9-2. The only thing that makes him not a 0, maybe even a 10-2, but the only thing that doesn't make him a 0 is the fact that he was able to avoid uh, criminal conviction, and he didn't end up um, uh, serving time in prison. But – I think you're right. I think a lot of people, they, um, you know, they view him as uh, as a as a pedophile. But here's the difference with Michael Jackson, and this is why I think he's a nine two, not a ten zero like Jared Fogle was. People still play Michael Jackson's music, and I think if you're totally disgraced, I don't know that they're doing that. You know, I I don't really see. Um, I don't see them playing a lot of Gary Glitter music, right? 800-848-9222. Mike is in New Jersey. Hello, Mike. Hey, Frank. Uh, R. Kelly. R. Kelly. How could I have missed that one? That is a perfect one. That's a 10-0. Roller in New Jersey. Hello, Roller. Yeah, Frank, in the conservative world, not Drudge. He went from a 10 to a 0. If you're really a conservative, you know he sold his site with his name, and he's ran off with the money, and the liberals that run it are hiding behind the Matt Drudge name to dupe the conservatives. So Matt Drudge definitely should be, like, thrown in a toilet bowl and flushed. But did, did Matt Drudge ever have the kind of appeal well, outside of conservative circles? It, uh, in the conservative world, the Drudge Report was everything. Right, but people I'm talking about people. I'm talking about people that weren't just celebrated in one political movement. I'm talking about people that were celebrated everywhere. So I would put Drudge at a five-five. I don't think people that weren't conservative really lionized Matt Drudge, and I don't think people that are liberal really viewed him as somebody that's disgraced. I don't think he's disgraced. 
If Matt Drudge wanted to come on this radio show, I'd, I, well, I'm not a good example because we have all sorts of disgraced people on this show. But um, Matt Drudge is a 5'5". Five five. That's not a good example, in my opinion. Uh, Ken in the Bronx, hello. Uh, good morning, Frank. How about Marion Barry? See, that's interesting. Um, that is a really interesting one. I'm going to – I think that fits the bill. I think it does. He did become a national laughingstock. He still got elected to the city council uh, in D.C. He's not a 10-0, but he's, he's an 8-3. He's an 8-3, I think, in my opinion. That is an interesting one. Uh, eight, um, that's John in Queens. Hello. Hey, how are you, Frank? How about Aaron Hernandez? Aaron Hernandez, that's a good one. I don't know that anybody fell faster than Aaron Hernandez did. I think that's a I think that's a perfect example. Pat on Long Island. How about O.J. Simpson? I mentioned O.J. He was one of the first folks that I did mention. All right, so now we're repeating. I think we'll probably wrap this up. Brett is in New Jersey. Hello, Brett. Hey, good morning, Frank. How about Charlie Sheen? Yeah, uh, somebody mentioned that. Uh, I think a lot of people still like Charlie Sheen. You know, he's got millions of followers on social media, um, you know, and we're starting to repeat. So uh, I'll, we'll, we'll make this the last one. I was saying, this might be too early to tell, but Will Smith. Will Smith. Hmm. Hmm. That might be too early to tell, but uh, that you may turn out to be right on that one. Okay. Yeah, he is. He is kind of a laughingstock now. I could see Will Smith being a comeback story, though. But we'll see. That might be good. He's got to do like a Barbara Walters crying interview where he talks about being, uh, you know, being mistreated. He's got to repent. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And then he'll be fine. Yeah, exactly. We'll do one more uh, and then we'll move on to the thousand dollar minute. Bob is in New Jersey. Hello, Bob. How about Reverend Jimmy Swagger? Oh, I think that is a good one. Yeah, I think that's perfect. I think that's a perfect example. Thank you. Bob, uh, he did have crossover appeal. It got no bigger in the evangelical community than Jimmy Swaggart. And uh, he was as disgraced as they come. Absolutely. Although he's made a little bit of a comeback now. I know he's in his 80s, but he's got a, a worship center and ministries. He has made a little bit of a comeback. In fact, let me try and write myself a note. It would be something to try and get Jimmy Swaggart on this show, wouldn't it? Let me see. He's 87 now. I got to. Okay, that's a good. All right. Hey, you want to win a thousand dollars? Be the seventh caller right now to 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. If you are, then you can uh, have an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. And if you can do that, then uh, you'll win one thousand dollars. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Be the seventh caller now at 800-848-9222 to have your opportunity to win straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
That's Will Smith. Uh, he uh, back when he was the Fresh Prince. If you ever want to um, know about the music we're playing on this program, just join our Facebook group. Just search uh, Morano Radio Fans and Haters, and we'll post all the songs that we uh, play on this program. Meantime, it is time for us to give somebody a chance to win some money because it's time for the other side of midnight presents. It's the thousand dollar minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Ah, yes. Uh, let us say hello to today's contestant, Solomon in Manhattan. Uh, Solomon, do you possess the wisdom of Solomon? Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> so do I. All right. Solomon, um, I imagine you're familiar with the game, right? Yeah, you ask me 10 questions, and if I answer them right, then um, I get a chance to win $1,000. Okay, right. You know it well. All right, the timer will begin after I um, ask the first question, okay? Um, name a religion. Um, Judaism. Who recently indicated he was no longer interested in buying Twitter for $44 billion? From South Africa, one of the richest guys on the planet, was going to buy Twitter. The owner of Tesla, the owner of Tesla. Okay, we'll take it. What year was Pearl Harbor attacked by Japan? Pearl Harbor attacked by Japan. 1948? No, I'm sorry. 1941. 1941. Okay. All right, I'm sorry you didn't win, Solomon. You, you do not possess the wisdom, Solomon. Um, Solomon, give, um, give Kenneth your information, and we'll, we'll send you a, a consolation prize of some sort. Um, I thought we were going to get farther. And we, you know, we've been having some contestants do really well, but uh, I had a feeling that uh, we were going to get a little, uh, a little farther. Hey, a uh, big day for us in the Morano household yesterday because my son Carmine had... Two big milestones yesterday. Not only did he try some of my Aunt Camille's egg salad for the very first time, and he made a face. I couldn't tell whether he liked it or not. Um, he might have just been tired, but he tr- he did try it, and he did eat some of it. So that was big. And then yesterday, finally, after the ordeal that we went through at the United States Post Office, we got Carmine's passport yesterday. That's right. So, and it's so funny. If you think about it, his face is going to look very different probably in five or six months. I mean, he looks like a baby, by and large. Now, he is getting to look more little boyish uh, as opposed to a baby. But he looks like a baby, and this passport is good for three years. So if if we if we show this passport in three years, it's still valid. It doesn't make any sense. You even hear you hear Carmine, you know, saying it doesn't make sense. But it was cute seeing his passport photo there. Um, hey, you know what? Uh, you know what has made a comeback, and a lot of people were predicting that it would not. The handshake. Remember during COVID, people were saying the handshake was dead. They were speculating that this ancient greeting 
would never come back? Well, um, handshakes are back. I've always found handshakes to be a little overrated. You know what Dominic Carter and I do when uh, when we leave every day when I see him? He gives me a fist bump. I give him an exploding fist bump. I like the fist bump. I have always felt that the handshake was way overrated. Forgetting about the germ issue. There are all these guys that think they need to prove something to you by trying to crush your hand when they when they meet you. I, it drives me crazy. My, you don't have to crush my hand. I get it. Okay. And then I, I, I will say I don't think I have a particularly firm handshake, you know, because I don't think it matters. I don't think it's a measure of, of machismo or character or anything at all. Uh, and then I remember one time, sometimes when you shake hands with a woman, I used to like to kiss a woman's hand. But that got, it got, you know, it fell so out of fashion that it became people viewed you as creepy if you did that. So I stopped that uh, maybe about 14 years ago. I stopped that right away. But um, there have been instances where I shake hands with a woman and she complains that my handshake is not firm enough. And I'm thinking, all right, I'm trying not to hurt you. I'm trying not to crush your hand. Now, I don't intentionally give a weak handshake when I'm, Shaking hands with a fella, but I, 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 there were, I remember at least two instances where I met a woman, and she said, "Well, you know, these are older women, but th- that oh, that handshake, it's it's not what I like. I like a firm handshake. Excuse me, I'll break your hand next time." Um, but I, they say a handshake gives a sense of the person behind the hand. I completely disagree with that. And there's all these people you meet for the very first time and your hand is still throbbing in pain hours later because people feel the need to squeeze you like a stress ball. So, look, I'm all for touching people. I think uh, there's, you know, responsibly and everything. But I think there's a lot that can be learned about a person through human touch But I I think there's a lot of warmth that can be conveyed. There's a sense of emotional intimacy that can be, uh, you know, conveyed by putting someone's hand on your shoulder. Again, you you know if you're being creepy or not. You you can't be creepy about it. And it's always much trickier when it's somebody of the opposite sex. But one of my favorite moves to do, especially for somebody that you're close with, maybe it doesn't fly so much at work, but is sort of a... Handshake with one hand into a half hug with the other hand. That's kind of my go-to move. And then, you know, as is the ethnic tradition of my culture, I'm I'm good with a uh, kiss on the cheek as well, you know, even for men. Uh, Love to hear your thoughts on that. Are you sorry the handshake is back? Are you happy that it's back? 800-848-9222. And you know what is uh, just crazy? So I'll give you, this is a true story. I was at my step-cousin's on Saturday night. And we're hanging out, you know, on their their deck at their house in uh, Brigantine, New Jersey. And my phone is dead. And people are SMS text messaging me to make plans and so forth. And my phone is dead. They can't. 
but I, I need to charge this phone. Now, I have a charger in the car. I don't want to go all the way out to the car and get it. I am the last non-iPhone user. I have a um, Google Pixel. So I say to my my step my step cousin in law Jody, I said, Jody, do you have a Google Pixel charger? She looks at me is it as if I've just asked her asked her where her fax machine was. She's looking at me like I've got six heads. She makes a face. She says, No, I don't even know what that is. What what is that? A camera? So I use a Google Pixel charger. Well, listen to this. All these other iPhone people out there, I am going to be the one laughing two years from now. Two years from now, when India is the most populous country in the world and nobody's getting divorced because everyone's Indian and Hindu, I am going to be the one guy that's laughing because (laughs) I will have chargers everywhere and you won't. Here's what's going on. Three years ago, Wirecutter, that's a magazine that covers technology and so forth. Um, See, the Google Pixel uses something called a USB-C charger. USB-C. Unlike what a lot of you people use, the USB-A charger, there's no right side up. So the USB-C is now the standard port in a lot of devices, including the device that I use, Google's flagship Pixel phone. But Apple is still clinging to its proprietary lightning connector. So it's just nuts that people have to buy numerous chargers and adapters for all our modern devices. And you know who else thinks this is nonsense? The European Union. So last month, the EU announced that most new portable devices, phones, tablets, headphones, etc., must, must use a USB-C charger by 2024. All new laptops in Europe must use one by 2026. So three years ago, Wirecutter praised the USB-C's quick charging speed and symmetry, unlike the USB-A, which all of you people are using. USB-C is now the standard port in all these devices, including the Pixel, but Apple is still clinging to this. They opposed the EU's move, claiming that strict regulation mandating just one type of connector stifles innovation rather than encouraging it. Now, I get what they're saying, but I would love to see that in this country. Imagine that one charger to rule them all. You don't have to have an adapter with five different types of plugs to it. You go into a bar or someone's house. You don't have to say, do you have an iPhone charger? Do you have a USB-C charger? Do you have a Google Pixel charger? Do you have a this charger or that charger? No. You could just say, do you have a charger? And it would be the standard. Like AC uh, electricity. Wouldn't that be nice? If we could do for chargers what they've done for plugs? So there are people that are pushing this in this country. And I got to say, I might be one of them. Who will join me on the USB-C train? Well, I'll see you in Google Pixelville. 15 seconds of fame um, in just a moment. 800-848-9222. You could say whatever you like for 15 seconds. Those of you that are on hold to talk handshakes, I'll try and get to you as well. And we'll squeeze in some extra seconds for you. 
depending on how things look for us. This is The Other Side of Midnight, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight, a terrific song from uh, Stevie G and the Starlighters. We're going to do uh, 15 seconds of fame in just a moment. 800-848-922 if you want to be heard on uh, any issue we've covered today or anything else you just feel like commenting. By the way, um, yeah, Boris Johnson was born in the United States. So his parents were British, but then they moved here. And um, so, you know what? He renounced his American citizenship five years ago. Shouldn't have done it. Shouldn't have renounced the citizenship. He could come here, run for president, and have his whole rehabilitation tour. You know, see, you you think you're being clever. Sure enough. All right, uh, let me say hello to Sherry in Brooklyn. Hello, Sherry. Good morning. I never stop hugging, and I will continue to be hugging everyone I meet. Yeah, okay. Uh, I think that's great. I'm a, I'm a big fan of hugging. What about handshakes specifically? Eh, I'm not too kind, because I've seen people doing weird things with their hands. So I, I'm with you. I am with you, I Sherry. Hands. If I ever run into you, give me a hug, okay? I'll give you one back. That's it. That's it. Thank you, Sherry. Uh, 800-848-9222. Todd is in Maplewood. Hello, Todd. Hey, it's Maplewood, but no big deal. Um, I like a standard handshake, Okay. Not a dead fish, like the person isn't alive, and you feel like you're hand- shaking hands of a corpse. But then again, not not a bone-crushing, you know, I'm stronger than you, me big, you small type stupid stuff. I mean, just be normal. And I like the little uh, suggestion of, you know, half and half, half hug, half. Yeah, that's hand my shake. move. I'm the half. I'm a. I'm yeah, a. I'm I like a, that. I'm a light handshake with a half hug. If I know you, if I've never met you before, then obviously you're not getting a a half a hug unless you're a really enthusiastic listener of this program. All right, 800-848-9222, time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Mike on Staten Island. Good morning, Frank and all the listeners. Today's special at Dino and Son is the Mikey G. You will not be disappointed. All right, Mikey G. Paul on Staten Island. Good morning, Frank. I was just curious. I drive through Bayonne every morning. The windmill that's there hasn't moved once since I've been driving to, driving to work. What's the deal with that? That's a good question. We'll have to research that one. I don't know. Victor in Manhattan. Uh, when Mark Twain was asked if he ever exercised, he responded, 
I get my exercise by walking to the funerals of my athletic friends. <laughs> Mike in New Jersey. Morning, Frank. Frank, in lieu of a handshake or fist bump, I like to give a nice neck massage. <laughs> I wouldn't mind that. That's actually not a bad tradition. Larry in Brooklyn. How ironic is it, Frank, that you left me hanging on hold when I had the, a better example, the best example of a 10 to 0, and I'm going to say it right now. You cannot top this one. Pete Rose. Uh, all right. Uh, Jose in Manhattan. Uh, I have a better one. A Pee Wee Herman. Okay. Well, I mean, he did work again after that and make movies. I don't, I don't know. If the Joe in Park Chester. You know, crime is out of control in New York City, but yet Eric Adams and the court system have time and resources, the NYPD, to persecute a woman on Staten Island. Her name is Gina Aversano. She's being persecuted for free speech. Look up her case. Gina Aversano, bitch shoot. She's a, a Melania in Florida. This Melania from Florida. My husband, he will be back. And finally, uh, let us say hello to Jeff. Jeff. Hello, Jeff. Or Jimmy, excuse me. Yeah, Jimmy. Uh, Sins of Morons, Sins of Morons. Oh, there we go. I'm glad we got uh, Mr. Grossman in there. Uh, There's a guy that really lives up to his name. All right. Uh, without, uh, I think that about slams the lid on things for today. Uh, if you want to comment on uh, anything we've covered, you can email me, uh, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at uh, wabcradio.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank M O R. A-N-O. Uh, be back tomorrow. Uh, we've got some fun stuff going on tomorrow. Comedian Ben Burgess is going to be here. Lambasting cancel culture. Not a fan of that cancel culture. As, um, you know, the, the New York Times did a wonderful profile on my friend Arthur Idala on Sunday. And they said he's the guy that can cancel cancel culture. I think Ben Burgess fits into that category as well. All right. I'm Frank Morano. Good day.